There are certain rules that one must abide by in order to successfully survive a horror movie. For instance, number one, you can never have sex. <laughs> big no no! Big no no! Sex equals death, okay? Number two, you can never drink or do drugs. No, the sin factor. It's a sin, it's an extension of number one. And number three, Never, ever, ever, under any circumstances, say, I'll be right back. Because you won't be back. I'm getting another beer. You want one? Yeah, sure. I'll be right back. <laughs> Welcome to Anything Goes, the best geek and pop culture show broadcast in Long Island, New York. I'm your host, Timothy Rooney. And we're back with What's Your Favorite Scary Movie? A chronological exploration of the Scream franchise. And I am I am joined again, once again, with my co-host, Mike Wilson. How are you doing, Mike? You sound nervous. Am I nervous? You sound like, hey, we're here uh, <laughs> doing this thing. No. Ah. No. Oh, that, see, that that's how, that's how it sounds oh like God. when you when you make loud noises at the microphone. Yeah, that's what you got turned up extra today. Uh, uh, I am I am extra all day, every day. I mean, so much so that yesterday when I was going for a walk, I was listening to Disney songs via YouTube because I'm a loser, and so I then like he said it, not me. I know I'm owning it. I mean, like I went even further. I like a friend of mine was texting me, saying, asked me what I was doing, and I told her that, and she's like, I don't believe you. So I took video of me singing a whole new world, and then not only I was not. Just sent it to her. I did put it on my Instagram story, so everybody saw that. That's what Tim lives in, a whole new world. <laughs> it's a very lonely place. Yes. But, like I said, and you can tell from the title, we'll talk about Scream 2, the second one in the Scream franchise. So let's jump into that right now. first see Scream 2. What was your history with this one in the franchise? Well, this one, much like the blockbuster video of Halloween, it started out, uh, say, as a cold, stormy night. It's a fall of 1997. Okay. It was still, the weather was still warm. Okay. It was still good. I just entered the eighth grade. And Scream 2 was coming out. There were commercials you're, you're, all over. You said that in a, an almost lyrical way there, too. Like, <laughs> you're just like, you were mid-reminiscing while saying that. That's not, uh, <laughs> Well, it was. I mean, but yeah, Scream 2 was coming out. There were commercials all over television for it. I had just had my life ruined by the original Halloween over that summer. My step-siblings at the time were raving about how great Scream 2 was going to be because they saw Scream 1. Mm -hmm. And so, to recap from my history from the last episode, when Scream 1 came on TV on, I believe it was, I believe it was Stars. Stars are Encore because I know they're owned by the same whoever. It's all owned by the same people anyway. But yeah. I think it was Stars, the Stars premiere of Scream. I watched it, got the best night's sleep of my life, even though I was warned I'd probably be terrified. So when Scream 2 came out, I was immediately interested, but didn't get to see it in theaters right away. I unfortunately had to wait until it came out on video, so I didn't see it until the following July. I remember it was over the summer, July in 98, I think it was. Okay. 
So I rented it. I was staying with my great aunt for the summer, who I grew up with. And I rented it, and she would sit down and watch it, a little bit of it with me. And she, was, she of course, is put off by graphic violence. But sometimes if a character says something funny, she'll laugh. Hmm. She'll try to get into it. Okay. Like the character moments and stuff. But mostly the violence turns her off. So I watched it, and I remember... I remember being a little bit creeped out. The more I watch it, though, and this is this is going to be the moment when, when uh, everyone that's ever said anything nice about me fucking completely mutinies and makes me walk the fucking plank and keel holes my ass. But I am not that big a fan of Scream Two. Sorry. No, no, no. Like, like I think people would want your honest opinion about it, and I know you're not alone. Yeah. I know there's a few listeners who are not the biggest fan of this movie. I like, actually, I like Scream 3 better. Cue the pitchforks. Okay, and, I wasn't going to go that far. I, I do. I like Scream 3 better. I feel like the stakes are raised. There's something real to it. And the fact that it is a closing chapter of the trilogy and all comes full circle, even if it wasn't executed the best, I will say that. The self It was executed, all right? It was executed, just like me. <laughs> the self-awareness of Scream kind of really made it an easier pill to swallow than the idea of this movie's whole framework of a sequel Mm -hmm. where you have a killer creating a sequel by copying the killings of the original in some form or fashion. Everything kind of has a link to the past Mm -hmm. and it doesn't have an elf boy with pointy ears killing everyone. (laughs) Nice. But that is the whole premise of screen two is that we have a copycat killer on our hands, recreating the murders of the original, but still trying to get, to Sydney. Right. But escalating the situation. But escalating the situation. And we'll get into Randy's new rules and everything because he does return. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of people return, in fact. Right. Um, before we get into the history of the movie itself, I'll talk about That's my yours. personal history. Um, much like how I saw the first screen with my sisters on video, same thing was this. Um, I believe I saw this before I saw Halloween H2O. Um, I think rather than both my sisters watching this with me, I think it was just my sister Eileen, the oldest of us. For some reason, it was just the two of us watching this. I saw it on VHS. It was another blockbuster rental. I'm pretty sure it was a blockbuster case, not a Hollywood video, even though we did frequent Hollywood video video. more often. Yeah. I remember Hollywood video. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. I remember walking into it and saying, it looks just like blockbuster, except more glamorous. Even even like the the rental boxes that everything came in still had like the same. it, It looked like they just took the exact copy of the Blockbuster one, changed the colors, changed the words, mm-hmm. and just made it a tiny bit more glitzy. Yeah, I, I mean, especially because they made, like, the backdrop of the Hollywood Video Store to make it look like the Hollywood Hills, and we have, like, the stars and everything up, and they have posters of famous movies up, and... And I remember the first time I walked into Hollywood Video, I remember because they would they would switch out new releases that were coming out of the video. And I remember the very first poster I saw when I walked in there was Mercury Rising with Bruce Willis, where he um, helps a special needs uh, child who, uh, who cracks a government code that's that's hidden subliminal messages. And he, help, he has to protect him from the assassins that are coming after him. And I'm pretty sure... It, it was a blockbuster release, uh, a rental for Scream 2, but it could be mistaken. And funny enough, I was going through, uh, there was teaspublic.com. They do like custom t-shirts. There was one with just the Hollywood video logo on there. And I was oh. very tempted to be a very hipster and, and buy that shirt. I saw in Target yesterday, a blockbuster video, make it a blockbuster night shirt. And I wanted to say, it's like, I would, but there's none left. They're all gone. Well, I, I mean, want to get that for a blockbuster video employee, a former employee. Oh, like, I'm sure that will cheer them up. Get it for, like, Randy Marsh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
before or after he's gone on he's gone crazy after he's been frozen outside <laughs> okay you want to stay out here and be frozen uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> and so after the success of the first scream a sequel was greenlit and a year later we had a sequel in december of 1997 well as we said in the first one kevin williamson he he uh while writing the original Scream, he had developed at the end two five-page treatments for potential sequels, this being one of them. The idea that it would be a copycat killer following Sydney in college. And he, after the success of Scream, was writing more and more. And by March 97, when it was all greenlit, he had 42 pages of the plot developed. It had all, you know, four different killers. And by July 97, it had begun filming, but... The script got leaked onto the internet. Yeah. Now, here's where things get kind of a little bit odd, because most of the actors did not receive the ending of the script. I or, think Jerry O'Connell said it was missing, like, the last 20 pages. Yeah, and if they did receive a completed script, it was with a dummy ending. Yeah, there were a lot of dummy scripts being leaked. Now, in 2017, and this is where things get a little bit fucking murky... <laughs> That I found on DreadCentral.com doing a uh, 20th anniversary interview with several folks involved. Apparently, Kevin Williamson is claiming that the leaked script was actually a dummy draft, like it was, like he created, like he created one f just in case, like hey, this new fangled internet thing, someone might actually try to leak my script on the internet. Let me make a fake one first. It, it, it seems kind of odd. Maybe it's him not wanting to admit that it got leaked. It, it, like I read that same article when we were rewatching the movie tonight as well, and I was like, "This seemed very strange." Like, did you know it was going to get leaked? Like, were you that prepared for it? The Nostradamus of horror movies. He knew it was going to get fucking leaked. Are you Grant Morrison's Batman? You prepared for every s single scenario out there. Maybe that's why he wrote the Cassandra scene that Sydney uh, rehearses in drama when she's when she's uh, she stars as Cassandra in the Fall of Troy, who predicts omens of the future, and he predicted his script would be. Released onto the internet, so he made a fucking fake one. <laughs> Kevin Williams is a soothsayer. Well, hold on, we didn't know it. This thing, I, I mean, I don't want to go too much into it because we'll spoil stuff here. But fucking, I'm sure all of you have seen it anyway. But you know our mo. We try not to be. We try to be spoiler proof. We try. We try to, you know, unravel this mystery as, as it goes. The movie goes we, along, we try yeah. to keep kayfabe here, folks. It's, yeah, it's, kayfabe is still alive and well. We act like we haven't seen this, and we're not gonna. I mean, we're going to give it away, but we're going to do it all in good time. Give it away, give it away, give, give it, it away, away now. now. Yeah, it was the 90s, so. <laughs> but a lot of it, it, it just, I, I don't know what to believe, so. Yeah, because reportedly there was three different endings at one point, the, the one with the four killers and then two alternates as well. Well, and in Scream 3, they uh, addressed that in the plot, and I think they also did they that. They make a joke about it. Yeah. And, and which I find really funny. At knowing the fact, as as a general audience member, you wonder like, eh, what's that about? But as if you are smart to that business, it, 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 you do chuckle out there. They they there they break breaking kayfabe for the audience right there. Yeah, and just I, I guess believe what you want. Believe if it, that it got leaked and that fucking they had to rewrite a ton of stuff. I, I mean, a lot of times I had to write finish writing script pages while the the day of filming they were on you know right which is not a completely abnormal things rewrites happens especially during shooting i mean hell jaws was written on the day like they had a script they had several drafts of the script but they would shoot a day on martha's vineyard but at night 
um, Spielberg and the screenwriter, uh, not Howard Sackler, uh, uh, I forget the guy's name. He he plays um, the guy who works for the newspaper and who like wears like the red pants and everything. You see him on Jaws. He's one of the screenwriters of it. He and Spielberg would write scenes at night, and then the following day they would shoot those pages. So shoot, writing pages while that middle filming is not completely abnormal, but it is somewhat abnormal it's like okay it's not the it's not the complete norm they would like to have a complete script by the time they uh get to shooting but there's how the situation was going plus the fact that horror had kind of changed at that point because i know what you did last summer came out in 1997 and kevin williamson had a hand in that as well if i'm not mistaken oh yeah this this was the the official um this was the the 90s horror boom in full effect now where everything had a more uh, Tongue-in-cheek. So, and- Tongue-in-cheek, self-aware. I know what you did last summer. Urban legend. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jeepers Creepers. Right. Shit like that. And But, like, I know what you did last summer. He had a hand in. Uh, Urban legend came out next year in 1998. Old then- Dimension also? Possibly, I know. I know what you did last summer was, and its sequel. I still don't know. I still, I still don't know. <laughs> that's I, the, the killer. I, I still don't know. <laughs> I still don't know what you did last summer. I don't know why. That's it's not, just a very boring movie. It's very, it's very short. <laughs> I don't know, like if like that title should be read by uh, Crystal Walken. There, I still don't know what you did last summer. I, I, I don't know, but. And then Dawson's Creek would come out and uh, would premiere in 1998 as well. So, needless to say, Kim Williamson was very busy um, around this time period. He was he was at his uh, peak, I'd say. Definitely. And so, as well, like, with the leaks happening, and so the ending was changed, and we'll get to the ending when we get there. And so it, it seemed like how the first Scream had a relatively un... Had a production that was. Uh, it was pretty rough. Yeah, I mean, like they're changing the director of photography and everything. The first screen. Well, all the troubles with the uh, the town. Yeah, but trying like, to get the, and just getting the script greenlit and everything and censorship. I just feel like the, the pressure was on with Scream Two a lot more than the first one. Well, I think that's very fair fair thing to say because, because the expectations and then the time the time crunch. Yes, because because yeah, you have the time. Like they did, they really have to try and get it out in a year. You know, it sounds a little. We've, we've spoken about that on this show before, about movies doing a one-year release um, in and, between... Yeah, Halloween 5. And like how much the, like how much we agreed upon the fact that like if they wait until 1990, it'd probably be a little bit better. I do wonder if it had anything to do with the fact that Kevin Williamson already had a treatment written for Scream 2. Probably, and they want to strike with the... Oh, but it's a Dimension film, so it makes sense that they would want to just like just uh, churn out another movie. And the fact that he's also... that. Kim Williamson wanted to direct the movie, and he eventually would in 1999, so he was going to be busy. Well, also, he was in the midst of writing it when the film finally got greenlit. He didn't start it afterwards. He was he was writing it just in case it actually happened, and it yeah. did. And I think it was safe to say it was going to happen. Right. But, I mean, they for this one, they did still have a couple of issues with the MPAA getting it out there and an R rating. Apparently, eight different cuts were made. and Of Scream 2? Were made, yep, of Scream 2. Oh, and wow. Bob Weinstein had to get involved to get the rating to get the rating to release the film without significant cuts huh but craven kind of well just not to interrupt craven did a little interesting thing to manipulate the mpaa here he actually sent them a version of the film that had been edited to focus and enhance the gore and violence beyond what they had so he made scenes more gory he reused a clip of uh omar epps's character in the beginning phil stevens getting stabbed in the ear three times instead of one extended scene of randy getting his throat slashed and his reasoning with that 
was that uh, the parts of film they wished to keep would be more acceptable when viewed with enhanced violence. I think Paul Verhoeven did that the same thing with Total Recall. Yeah. Where like he would like because Total Recall and just Paul Verhoeven movies, especially his Hollywood movies, are very violent in general. And the fact like, all right, let me send the most obnoxious cut that I can. And then I'll we'll so that kind of, so that when I gear it back, I get what I want precisely, <laughs> which makes sense. Um, you want to do that? It's not like one of those things where like you think of Scarface, which like the like De Palma went to the press saying this is a First Amendment issue here, and the, the MPAA finally buckled to the demands of uh, Universal there. Mm-hmm. Um, Marco Beltrami returned to do another score. It it. I like Marco Beltrami. I don't think he's a bad composer. It's just I don't, when I, after I listen to these movies, I'm not humming any of any of his tunes. That's fair. I don't remember them. They're, they're wallpaper. It, 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 yeah, it literally sounds like he could have gotten them out of any classical public domain library, and I wouldn't be able to tell the difference. Mm-hmm. I mean, but like music, there's going to be two specific uh, pieces of orchestra music that are dropped into this movie that were not composed by him specifically, and we'll get to those when we get there. Mm-hmm. But like. Uh, Peter Deming came back to photograph the movie. Patrick Lucier came back to edit the movie. M- many of the crew members returned from the first one to the second one. They were returned through the entire series. So, like we mentioned before, it is nice to see a consistency of behind the camera. As, as well as on the camera. Exactly. I, I, I do think it helps because when you make all this stuff together, you really do – as I've learned from working with you, you do really start to get to know each other, form like a bit of a bond, know everybody's quirks, know everybody's tics. And, and, and you know what they, what one person wants and what, what person yeah. needs. And if you if you were successful last time and you all got still got the same creative drive, go for it again. You know? Yeah, if you don't hate each other by the end, you want to do it again. <laughs> but like that's the joke that a lot of actors say, oh, we should work together again if they really get on and then – it usually doesn't happen like that because that's how Hollywood works, unfortunately. Yep. But also returning behind – like we have these people returning behind the camera. But in front of the camera, we have Dev Campbell returning as Sydney, David Arquette as Dewey, Courtney Cox as Gail, Jamie Kennedy as Randy, um, Roger L. Jackson as the voice of Ghostface. Lee Schreiber is returning as Cotton Weary. Now, if you recall, in the first one, he was only seen briefly in like news reports at, for the murder – the framed murder of Maureen Prescott. Right. Here he's fully fleshed out. He is lying. He's a, he's a legit, legitimate character this time around. Yes, he's a full-on, full-on fucking character. Before um, the days of Sabretooth and, and Ray Donovan, he was cotton yes. to me. I did say Roger Jackson comes back as a voice that goes for Yes, you did. Okay. But also adding on to this, we have even more uh, new characters that also scream 90s. We oh, boy, do they. Jerry O'Connell as Sydney's new boyfriend, Derek. Mm-hmm. Um, Sarah Michelle Geller as one of the victims, uh, Cece Cooper. Yes. Fucking Lori Metcalf as a reporter, Debbie Salt, mm-hmm. right after Roseanne ended. Exactly. For the first time, which should have been the last time. <laughs> Fucking Jada Pinkett before she was Jada Pinkett Smith as yep. Maureen Evans, Omar Epps, Phil Stevens, mm-hmm. uh, Rebecca Gayhart and Portia de Rossi as two sorority girls that are trying to get Sydney to join. Mm-hmm. Um, we got. Who almost was Freddy Krueger? David Warner as Sydney's drama teacher. Uh, drama. Gus, yes, yep. uh, the uh, Mr. Gold. He's credited as. Um, and then there is also uh, I forget how I'm missing. Oh. At least Neil as Hallie, Sydney's roommate. There we go. I, what did she go on to do? Did she go on to? Do I think she did a lot of TV after this. I don't think she did a lot of movies after uh, Scream Two because I remember I see her uh, popping on TV a lot. Um, there's somebody else I'm trying to think. That's in here that I'm, I'm totally blanking on right now. Oh, if you think of it while we're going. Yeah, I'm sorry, folks. I just went through the whole cast list I have. Here. Okay. But also we have a couple Oh, of... Timothy Oliphant. 
Oh yeah, Timothy Oliphant and Mickey has a the Joshua the Jackson. There we go. That's who I was trying to remember from uh, who would go, who is a who was from the Mighty Ducks movies and go on to be on Dawson's Creek. Yeah, he's brief as uh, one of Randy's classmates. There actually are a couple of brief uh, actor cameos in this movie mm-hmm. now because the premise, which we will get to, we'll ju- just to introduce you right now, is that in the year since the the killings in the first movie. Uh, the events of that have actually been adapted into a movie themselves right. called Stab, based yeah. on a book Gail Weathers wrote. Right. And I mean, it's two years after the events of the first movie. Is it, though? I, I've seen it. Like, I checked the several Wikipedias, and it's mentioned it's two years after the events of it. But here's the funny part. I hear in there Cotton Weary say something about two years. Now, a year prior would have been when well, Billy was... struck, and a year before that would have been when he was framed for Maureen's death. Yeah. So I think it's probably... It's pretty murky right now. Right. The co- the reason why we're so uh, unclear about it is because there's a line dialogue in Scream 3 that we'll get to that kind of fucks the timeline up, saying that the fact that four years ago in that movie's timeline that Maureen was still alive, that's the problem. That it's saying that it's like a year between Maureen's murder to the events of Scream 1, then like a year goes on, like, or two years goes on in between that and here, and then a year later Scream 3 happens. It, but it definitely seems like more time has gone past between... I never believed a year after... Scream, Scream 3. I never believed that Scream 3 took place a year after Scream 2. I always thought it was like three. I always thought it kind of went the way it did in real life. Yes. Where Scream 2 is a year after Scream 1. Scream 3 is three years after Scream 2. Because they've, because they're working on Stab 3 by the time they get yeah. in the movie's continuity. Yes. So they've had to at least put out another, another movie in between this and that. But further, well, there was a Stab 2, which n- nothing from it has ever been seen or alluded to. They, but you, if you want, there are, somebody made, on the DVD collection, much like how there's fake scenes of recreating um, scenes from the first uh, Scream movie in Stab, they did make uh, fake uh, parody scenes of Stab 2, making fun of Scream 2, on the DVD collection of it. I'm pretty sure you can find it on the Blu-ray it, as well. And in Scream 3, it, it is referred to as the Windsor College Murders. Yes. Um, but also further complicating things, right in the opening scene, there's a movie pa- uh, patron at the movie, at the movie theater, saying how, oh, this should actually happen a couple of years ago, so... Is Who knows, folks? We're, we're thinking a year to two years at most. I, I mean, I, I know it makes it sound like we're trying to describe the Terminator timeline to you, but... Uh, <laughs> or the sexist shit. chainsaw. I think I just sure. threw up in my mouth a little. Continuity. That's right even... That's, you know what? I'll take that, because at least that shit was intentional reboots, not reboots through time travel. <laughs> where this thing happened, and now it actually didn't. Where it's like, okay, this thing happened, and then this thing happened. Now, just forget about that last thing. Pretend it never happened. You see that there? What was it? In Terminator continuity, they literally erase the events. <laughs> now I just hear and Arnold's voice. it still makes even less sense. I just hear Arnold's voice say, you've just been erased. You've just been erased. <laughs> Why can't I get the fuck away from these movies? <laughs> <laughs> but yes, in the actual stab movies, in the actual screen movies, we actually do have some real-life actor cameos, like mm. Luke Wilson, Heather Graham, Tori Spelling. Right. And actually, the Tori Spelling one goes back to Sydney saying in the first one how she would like to be cast as a young Tori Spelling. Yeah. So that's a nice, like, uh, in... Oh, no. Randy says I see was a young Meg Ryan, and she says... No, Dewey be... says Meg Ryan. Dewey says Meg Ryan. She and... says she'd rather be Tori Spelling. No, if my luck, my luck, I would get Tori oh, Spelling. Oh, okay. Well, she did. So. Yeah. Um, and, and, and Luke Wilson as uh, Skeeter, which is hilarious. We'll get to that, though. Yeah. <laughs> so... We begin this movie. Mm-hmm. Um, is I believe it's the premiere of Stab. Yeah, it, it's probably. If I had to guess, this is a Thursday night premiere. 
um, probably early screening premiere that's that's going on throughout the country, and one of them happens to be in Windsor College, the, the college town of where the um, in Ohio where in Ohio. Yes. Okay. Um, because you see license plates that are meant to be Ohio. However, the fact that like they shot most of the school scenes were actually shot in at the college of. Uh, Angus Scott College outside of Atlanta. However, the Rialto that we see here at the opening of uh, Scream 2 uh, is actually in Pasadena. It was not, the, and this is not the only Pasadena uh, location we'll actually see in this movie. We'll also like because the at least the exteriors of the Rialto was used for this. The interiors of this was the actually the Vista Theater that you can find on Sunset Boulevard, hmm. which was also used for the, the movie theater in True Romance. Okay, yeah. So we're introduced to uh, college students Phil Stevens. Was it uh, Phil Stevens and? Maureen Evans. Yes. I, they, they're such plain names. I almost get them. I want yeah. to say like uh, Rich Evans. and <laughs> <laughs> They fucking love Star Wars. <laughs> they fucking love Star Wars. I mean... But anyway, they're attending the premiere of Scream. And... <laughs> Which reminds me of just the Conan bit when, there was a, when Phantom Menace came out. And it was the, uh, I forget what, the insulting dog saying, talking to a person dressed up as Darth Vader. Which one of these buttons on your suit calls your mother to pick you up after seeing the Phantom Menace? <laughs> Um, and so they, they are invited to go see a preview screening of Stab the weekend it comes out. Yep. And everybody and their mother, when it comes to students, is there. Lined up around the block. Uh, this is Omar Epps and Jada Pinkett Smith. I guess she wasn't Smith at this point, but that's yeah. their characters. And they get into this movie theater. They're giving out free costumes. They got the place decorated. They have a gigantic, like, hand with a stabbing motion coming down outside the theater. Right. It's extremely ridiculous at this point. Oh, yeah. They get into the theater. People are just rowdy, jumping around. Like, you do not see crowds like this. No. Ever. <laughs> and you know, you know what's the really sad state of affairs is that because of assholes and psychopaths throughout the world, that we are not allowed to wear costumes to movie theaters anymore. Yep. Pretty much. Yeah. Which also, a recent, a recent event, like somebody, I was watching, I forget what movie it was, and somebody was standing in, like, the hallway leading up to, like, the exit, and it was just, I just saw the shadow standing there. Like, I, I was actually afraid of my, for my life there, because I'm like, oh, no, am I not going to, am I just going to end up in a fucking school, uh, in a movie theater shooting? M- movie theater shooting. And then I was, and that's the kind of world that we live in, and it's, it's really, Sad state of face because the day of recording this is 420, uh, 20 year anniversary of the Columbine shooting. Jesus. Yeah. And, and Hitler's birthday. And Hitler's and birthday. And National Weed Day. Yeah. So it's. Choke a, up, everybody. Exactly. It's only, only going to get more downhill from here. <laughs> and so, yeah, they go to see Stab, which we get to see a recreation of the events of the first screen. Yeah. And this is actually all the Stab stuff was shot by Robert Rodriguez. Really? Yeah. I, I, conf- I made sure to confirm that. Well, they shot, they shot this uh, in completely the exact opposite of what actually happened. In the first scream, uh, Casey Becker did not have some amazing like fucking Hollywood Hills house with a pool and everything, and she was not about to take a shower and get totally naked. No, but I, I mean, but we need to see Heather Graham naked. Well, unfortunately, we don't. No, and much to the chagrin of one of the patrons here in the movie theater who groans at the fact that he does not, we do not see anything of her being nude there. And but it's supposed to be. It's satirizing the kind of schlock uh, horror movies out there and uh, of Hollywood uh, horror movies right there. Now, do you feel that that's Scream satirizing or Stab satirizing? Uh, I think that's Scream satirizing. Okay. Because, yeah, like as soon as she drops her freaking bathrobe, the crowd starts cheering, take it off, take it off. Jada Pinkett's like, why does she got to be naked? What does the plot of the story have to do with her being naked? And fucking Omar Epps. Phil, like, like, oh, I, I, I'm I, not complaining I about it. I got a stiff one. I don't know about the plot, but I got a stiff one. Like, why? Like, fucking... 
you have a girlfriend. It's not like you never see a fucking naked woman. Come right. on now. We're all adults here. Right. So she decides she's fucking Jada Pinkett decides that she's tired of this. Um, I would say the overall cinematography kind of sucks of Stab because the killer just like reveals himself constantly. Yeah. He's appearing in a window. He's constantly appearing in a window with music stabs. No pun intended. <laughs> but <laughs> and his introduction <laughs> to her is uh, of himself to her is total fucking just schlock. Just like oh hello, who's this? I don't know. Who are you? I, I, Who are you expecting? And apparently she yes. co- apparently she's cooking popcorn and about to go in the shower. So oh yeah, I totally cook things and jump in the shower. Duh. I remember one time my stepbrother, he turned on the shower, getting ready to go, and then he spent the next two hours on the phone with his girlfriend while the water was running the whole time. And it was hot water, too, so the whole house is, like, steaming up. I'm like, Nick, are you going to take a fucking shower or what? <laughs> <laughs> I'll give five minutes. That was always his thing. Five minutes. It's going to be five minutes. Be doing five minutes. Yeah, five minutes. Uh, I remember my stepdad used to disconnect the phone on him when he wouldn't get off. And then he'd come really? back. And then my stepbrother would come back in, reconnect it, because he has to call back and say goodbye. And then he'd get on, and then fucking 20 minutes later, my stepfather saying, telling him, say goodbye. Disconnect, <laughs> disconnect the cordless. I'm just thinking of that scene from um, Raider Rumble. Get off the phone, you pussy! <laughs> <laughs> well, what's funny here is that uh, Maureen, Jada Pinkett, she actually starts getting into it. She's telling, she's yelling at the screen, hang up the phone and Star 69 his ass. Right, and like this whole scene is kind of satirizing... Um, very rambunctious movie crowds. But it, it is... Turn up to 11. I'll agree to that. Yeah. It, it, no, it's beyond fucking 11. Yeah. So she does like I would probably do and just get fucking tired of everything and just leaves to go buy something to eat. Yeah. So she decides to go to the snack bar. And while she's out there, you know, there's, there's still people out in the freaking hall running around like fucking animals. It's like, I thought you people came here to... To watch a movie, you know. And they're probably late. They're probably, they're probably um... they, no. If they were late, they'd be actually giving a shit, not chasing each other around. Unless there's more than one screening going on right now. Maybe. But as she's getting her uh, snacks, two girls, as I was saying before, movie patrons, come there and start talking about the true story that happened. You know, mm-hmm. that's I guess you're set up saying that this is a movie based on true events. Right. And in the beginning, when they walk in the theater, they say they show a thing that says based on true events, based on the book The Woodsboro Murders by Gail Weathers. Right. So, as it seems, Gail has written another book, yeah, exploiting everything, mm-hmm. much like a sequel. Gail's back to doing the same thing she was doing in the first one, right? So as Maureen tries to get back in the theater, Phil decides to come out and scare the living shit out of her. But yeah, and which she does not like whatsoever. She's pissed off. Yeah, and I would be too, because it's just like, oh, geez, like why, why the hell are you doing that, dude, man? It is ridiculous. But then that's when he's like, all right, fine. I'm sorry. Maybe we'll go see the Sandra Bullock movie that you mentioned before. It's like, no, 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 we'll stay. And he's like, okay, fine. And then he decides, I have to go to the bathroom and, like, I'll be right back kind of moment, which he oh, should you never say that. Because, like, even though he does not say it, it's a be right back moment. Yep. And one of the more famous images from this sequence is the two uh, ghost faces at the urinals. Yeah, there's two guys in the go- free ghost face uh, costumes taking a piss. Yeah, and I think, like, like every article I've read about Screen 2 in the past couple of years has always used that still image mm-hmm. because it's immediately identifiable with this movie. And when. Uh, Phil was trying to get into Omar Epps was trying to use the one of the urinals that they, they're occupied, but well, the stalls, yeah. And he knocks on a door that's locked, but like that's when he starts wearing like his weird whispering that's going on, very Black Christmas like when we hear like um, Billy and Agnes like whispering to themselves or yelling to themselves. He's talking about like here's somebody in there talking about mommy, telling you why I did it. Mommy, listen, mommy, listen. And, this is and it's very faint. Yeah, you can barely hear it. No, it's like, it's one of those things. You either you have that really good sound system, or you turn on the subtitles to hear what the person is saying. Yeah. So Phil, out of curiosity, decides to put his ear up to the stall like he can't 
am I hearing what I thought I heard? Right. And I liked it better when, what was it, Scary Movie 2? When it's just a penis. And it, he puts his ear up next to the glory hole, and yeah. then, like, a dick comes out and just tickles his ear. And, and then, then eventually it pales at the... <laughs> I'm not saying I like seeing dicks on screen, folks. No homo. I just, I thought it was a funny gag. I, it's no so... pun intended. <laughs> I got you. <laughs> it's so funny you mentioned that because when he got stabbed in the air, like, uh, all I could think of was the scary movie with the penis going through his yeah. ear now. Uh, that was back when scary movie was still fun. The first scary movie is still funny. Yeah. I, I, I would revisit that Like if somebody was like, hey, you want to watch a scary movie? I'm like, yeah, I would definitely do that. But anyway, as Phil has his ear up to the stall to listen, apparently there's someone in a ghost face costume in that lock stall and stabs through it and stabs him right in the fucking ear. Like, yeah. And Phil, he's go he's going down fast. He didn't hear it coming, that's for sure. Nope, he didn't hear it coming. So <laughs> our our ghost face for this movie, ghost face waits for the other guys to leave. And he gets back into the theater with Phil's jacket on. And Jay Pinkett believes that it's actually Phil under the costume and just like playing along. But she starts uh she's very much into this movie right now. And she grabs onto him, all scared. They're recreating the scene where Casey was murdered in the first one. They they shoot but, it just like the original. They shoot it, but like even like the sound design is very over the top. Like every like stab has like shushing sound effect. Like even mm-hmm. when they pull the blade out of her and everything, and when she punches Ghostface, it's like almost, I'm so wouldn't be so shocked if like we see like pow on the screen like Batman six <laughs> style. But to Maureen's horror, as she goes to you know grip to fill to. Hold on to him tight because she's scared. Right. She puts her hands up and they're covered in fucking blood. Yeah. At which face, Ghostface knows he's exposed. He looks at her, pulls out his knife, stabs her right in the fucking stomach. But since so many people are so into the movie, they don't realize that she's actually being stabbed. Since we have this unrealistic level of commotion during a movie that people are clearly not trying to pay attention to Mm -hmm. and giving a fuck about, uh, she is now being stabbed to death. He gets up out of the uh, seat, follows her down the aisle as she's like slowly dying. But there's people standing all over the place doing fake stabbing each other, running up and down the aisle. this looks like a fucking playground right now. Yeah. And, this and, looks like a fucking McDonald's play place from hell. However, however, they think they first thought it was a stunt. Yeah. Because this, this whole thing is so gimmicky at this point. I guess it, it makes sense why people wouldn't take it um, would take it at face value right here. But also, I think this is possibly my favorite. One of my favorite parts of the movie is because it's... Poking fun at horror audiences. Yes, they're watching the cinematic violence happen, and they're frothing at the mouth for how crazy it is. Meanwhile, someone's actually being killed. They think it's all bullshit. But then when he ducks out of the emergency exit, she climbs on the stage, you know, bleeding profusely, screaming. They all stop, and freaking reality sets back in. You see these people take their masks off, and they realize, oh, fuck. This isn't fake. This is real. Yeah, and they just like and all these bad extras, like with their heads on their heads, shaking their heads in disbelief. Like, oh like, no, oh, no, come on now. I mean, it's a sobering moment here, but I, that's why I love it. It's just like it's showing, it's lifting up a mirror to horror audiences. Like, hey, like, hey, yeah. don't get too excited for this. Like, yeah, this is like, yeah, like we all have a good old fun with horror movies and everything, but. It is supposed to be horrific. Violence is fucking real, folks. Yeah. People do die when things like, shit like this happens. And that's why I, I, I adore the opening sequence of this movie because of yeah. that. So after the title card, we pick up Windsor College. Uh, Sydney is just, you know, waking up, just getting ready for the day to her, her phone rings. Right. And you, and you think, uh-oh. 
that dorm room phone, and on the other line, oh shit, it's, it's Ghostface. It's still a familiar voice. But Sydney's not, uh, uh, not, face. not at all. And you wonder, like, wait, like, is she that desensitized to it? But, but no, because she's got caller ID, yep. which what they, there was uptake in caller ID after the success of the first movie. <laughs> so I bet you Bell Atlantic was very happy about that. Oh, yeah, and she exposes the guy. It's a uh, dorm room guy named Corey. And, she, and he's you like, hear oh, shit. Like, oh, shit. She even says, hope you enjoyed the movie. Yeah, and like, I even love the fact that, like, her roommate questions the fact that... Um, you want to change the numbers again? No, like, it'll uh, die off. Yeah. Opening weekend, like she's got all this planned. Yeah, like she is uh, cool as a cucumber at this point. She's grown so much from the first movie that she's able to, that she's a functioning adult right here. Mm-hmm. Not saying she, she wasn't before, but she is. Time has passed, and it's shown through her actions from the very first scene. Yep. And as she's getting ready for a day, she notices on the TV there's a talk show interview with Cotton Weary that catches her attention. Mm-hmm. Cotton has been released from prison mm-hmm. in since the events of uh, Scream One. He was completely, fully exonerated, you know, he was 100% innocent and let go to live his life. But now, you know, he's doing all these interviews, he's kind of becoming a bit of a, like, media hog, like, he kind of wants to become famous yeah, he, after being infamous. Yeah, he's he's making the rounds and everything, and, uh, fun fact, the person who's interviewing is actually Kevin Williamson. Oh, shit. Yeah, and that's why I always find that as cool. We don't have a close-up of him, but you can, t- like, if you go to the uh, Y2 shot of him and you can tell it's them. But also, another cool, like, thing that her, um... Um, Sid's roommate here, she has a Freddy Krueger uh, sweater up on her door right there. But it's like, I totally missed that. Yeah, it's, instead of it's red and green, it's red and blue. But it's the same stripes and everything like that. But Hallie wants her to like, okay, you're, you're good, you're strong and everything, but I think you should come open, to up. My, open up a little bit and... There's a sorority, a sorority house party going on. Come and meet everybody. Maybe we'll, maybe we'll pledge. Maybe we'll... Yeah, because she is pledging, but she wants Sydney to pledge with her. Yes. And like she... It's Sid ain't a sorority person. No, no, no. And it's not exactly peer pressure or anything, but she's Hallie's doing it for the well being of Sydney right here. That she wants to get out and meet new people and everything like that. And it's so funny when watching the scene because it goes from inside the their dorm room out into the hallway and the fact that it's shot widescreen, they're framed on either side of the frame. But if, I remember watching the old pan scan ver- version of VHS and it was literally edited together with cuts of two singles of them in in uh, mm-hmm. Back profile yep. yeah so they their uh conversation is quickly interrupted when a uh member of their dorm comes and tells them to check out the news and where they find out about the murders that maureen and phil were mortared murdered mortared they were mortared <laughs> yeah it was a very extreme way that the uh it was goes, mo- it was such a mortifying murder that it, they dropped mortars on them they blew up the word. theater yes and they were they were blown up mortifyingly with mortars. So they were mortared. Yeah, they were mortared. They were mortared. <laughs> <laughs> I'm such a mortard. Right <laughs> I can't speak. But anyway, Sid is clearly like ah, shocked. Like, oh, fuck, not again. Oh, uh, here goes. Now, and- do you get the feeling she was kind of preparing for this? And the back of her mind, she knew it wasn't over. Subconsciously, she knew it. That it wasn't over? But I think she didn't want it to happen, but like she knew... Possibly that's why – I think that's why she's – when she leaves the dorm room that she's kind of prepared for all the – The spectacle. That's, the, and the, that's her looks. That's how she dubs it later on. Well, she's de- dealt with it fucking twice now with the one with her mother – when her mother was murdered and mm-hmm. then when Billy and Stu went on their big rampage to get her. And yeah, and, and – So she's, she's got practice, unfortunately. Yeah. And, but like she leaves her dorm room and then she's immediately um, – Accosted by the by press. A, a gaggle of the uh, of people from the media. A cacophony of cantankerous – 
uh, con artists. The, uh, nice alliteration right there. I'll give Thank you, you. A, a hand right there. But yeah, much like the original Scream, there's now fucking reporters crawling all over the goddamn place. And then we cut to probably one of the most things I can identify with as a like, college student who, who took a film class or two. Randy is in film class. Yeah. And it's so funny. We have Sarah Michelle Geller here. CC, Sarah Michelle, her character, CC Cooper. Yeah. Uh, we have Timothy Oliphant. <laughs> Not... Not one of those large elephants from Lord of the Rings. Damn it. That's why I thought he was going to cause more damage. No, fucking uh, uh, Orlando Bloom did not put three arrows in the back of his head and then ride his trunk down. But it still only counts as one. It still only counts as one, though. But he's here (laughs) as Mickey, uh, another film student and friend of everybody's. Mm -hmm. And they're having a rousing argument about are the movies – is this movie now responsible for – making this happen right and like as uh, cc and others uh believe the fact that no that the movie is not responsible for the actions of others and everything like that that human beings are capable of terrible things here mickey does though he believes his life imitating art imitating life right and randy is the one who lived through it and tells them that you know art is art life is life fucking shit is gonna happen you yeah know? I mean, it's the thing I've said before. Like, you think the Crusades were caused by movies or anything? Or no, fucking humans are just prone to fucking violence. Yeah. It's in your nature to destroy ourselves. Yes. By creating Terminator Genesis. <laughs> you destroy ourselves. And it's one of the things that, since I, I don't think Cece was one of the people who was going to be originally killed earlier on in the script. And I think, like, all of, like, her close-ups were, like, reshoots. So that's why we can we keep saying, hey... Recognize this person here because she's yeah, going to die very soon. Yeah, yeah, right? But the film teacher gets the idea that by this film based on life causing what happened in life to happen again, if that makes any fucking sense, by life imitating art imitating life, is this new killer trying to create a real-life sequel? Right. And Randy, you know, says, why would you want to do that? Sequels suck. And everyone gets mad at him. So they have an argument about good sequels. Yeah. About what's, you know, better and how there's been more sequels that have surpassed their others. They talk about Aliens, T2, and Godfather Part, Part 2. two. And, and, and I think it's... It's few and far between, obviously, that the sequel has surpassed the original here. And then the fact that, like, you have that comic book movies, like The Dark Knight being in one of them, or The Avengers as a sequel, etc. But that's the odd thing about comic book movies, because comic book movies... Are serialized storytelling. Well, comic books are serialized storytelling. Comic books movies, if anything, are adaptations. Yeah. You could take a story that was written in print that's better than an earlier story and adapt it. Right. And, it'll, and it'll still be better. You know? Right. And, and I, I, I guess people have had this idea that like, you think of like the Marvel Cinematic Universe as feature films, television show, like that each phase is a, is a season. Each movie is a TV episode. And that's why you can you can have a little bit of character development that leads into each other. So I don't think like some of these are not really true sequels, even though Iron Man 2 has the, the two moniker mm-hmm. in there. But that was still in first phase one where they didn't firmly establish what they were going to go for for the rest of the cinematic universe. But we we see that uh, Randy still wants, still has the hots for Sid a little bit here. Yeah, he's got this, like, odd, like, confidence about himself. And he, <sighs> one of my biggest problems... Because we know he's not a virgin at this point. Yes, one of my biggest fucking problems with this movie is a lot of its dialogue and, ex- and overacting and just... There's a lot of scenes where just these people are fucking, like, hamming it up. Mm-hmm. You could tell almost... It's more ham than a slaughterhouse. It's more ham than fucking 
the Baconator, <laughs> an army of Baconators, and, and the one here with Randy when he's leaving, and they were saying, "What would you change?" Well, what would you change in a sequel, Randy? He mm-hmm. would say, "I'd let the geek get the girl," and he takes out a thing of Banaka. Alex uh. uh, sprays, but he has no finesse to the way he moves. He like blinks before he sprays it, like it's gonna hurt, yeah. like he's spraying it in his fucking eyeballs or something, <laughs> or in an open wound. <laughs> There's nothing finesse to it, and it walks, and it's just so awkward. Ah oh, man, but and then we get like we argue that. Sid here has it's like it's happening again, and Randy's in complete denial of the fact that like no, this has nothing to do with us. It's just a random set of occurrences here. Well, he he, he wants to believe that because you don't you don't want to believe that you're going to go through this horror again. No, why would you? Yeah, you know, like when you when you survive something that bad, you don't want to fucking believe that it's going to happen again. Right. You want to believe that it's over and that fucking you know we got the people who did it, so it has to be over. This mm-hmm. is just an isolated incident. It's it's. It's fucking just somebody who went nuts fucking around, you know. And so, and like multiplexes are very dangerous places, and they did only get worse. Yeah. But then we introduced to Jerry O'Connor, who plays Derek, uh, Sydney's the new, new boyfriend. boyfriend. Yep. Yeah. And Much to the chagrin of Randy. Oh, he's he's jelly. He jelly. He jelling like a felon. After robbing a bank. Yep. Uh, and he's trying to cheer Sid up. He gives her a big kiss, and there's fucking Randy just looking on, just like, gawking here, disbelief just like, and anger, like, just like why can't this be me? He just says, get a room at the end. That's a punctuating of the scene there. And then we we are introduced to the quad of Windsor College here. And obviously, this takes like I said before, it takes place in Georgia. And we're introduced to Gail Weathers and how the media has descended upon the college now. And Gail is once again a member of the media. She, well, she never stopped being, but she's working as a reporter. She has a new cameraman named Joel who's extremely hesitant about everything. Yeah. Because he, you know, he is. First time he's dealing with anything of this magnitude. As First a, time he's dealing with, like, major news of this magnitude, of just, like, working, like, a real professional news show. But this first time working this professional news show also happens to be covering fucking uh, copycat murders with someone who survived them. And who, someone who survived them, whose cameraman was murdered whose in the process. Whose cameraman was murdered. Yeah. But as Gail's, you know, walking around... Just trying to get the scoop on things. Uh, we are introduced to another reporter, this woman named Debbie Salt, played by Laurie Metcalf, mm-hmm. Jackie from Roseanne. Yep. And apparently she's a big fan of uh, Gail's. She's kind of followed in her footsteps, said how great her book is. Comes off kind of patronizing and weird. Everyone in this movie is so fucking weird. That's one of the things I don't like. Everyone is just – and it's more than like original Scream where they're trying to set up that anyone could be the killer. Mm-hmm. In this one, they they are trying to set up that whole framework again that anyone could be the killer because everyone – but everyone is just so fucking unbelievably weird. Hmm. Like wh- where do you people fucking come from? Midwest. I guess. <laughs> fucking weird. But – What's interesting is that as the movie goes on, we really do see a reversal of the role for Gail, where because she survived this and is involved in it, reporters almost kind of descend on her, looking for her rather than, ideas and quotes instead of her hounding them, you know? Rather than her like, wanting to report the news, she has become the news. She has become point. the news. She's still involved in this. She's trying to get herself involved for her career, but it's backfiring. Right. And do you think Courtney Cox is more ruthless as Gail in this rather than the first one? Uh I don't know, because in the first one, in the first one, she was in it entirely for the fucking, you know, the the, the fame and fortune. As a, I mean, I don't want to say fortune it, and glory. I don't want to say entirely because she did care enough to defend Cotton Weary. She believed his story all the way and was mm. the only person, the only dissenting opinion that believed that he did not murder Maureen Prescott. She had no dog in that fucking fight. She wasn't involved personally. In this one, the stakes are a little different because she survived this and now. Everybody's be, from before is being targeted 
you know, as as the movie goes on. So I think there's a part of her that knows this time that she's going to be in the crosshairs. But at the same time, what we're talking about now, how the, her whole reporting thing is backfiring, where people are reporting on her. People are looking. To, people are shoving a microphone in her face, saying, "Oh, you have a comment on all this?" Like and she's they, like, "I just want to do my job, and you guys are preventing yeah. me from doing my job." Like she, like you know, she's become Sydney and everybody in the first film when yeah. she's trying not to be. And like the shoe, the shoe, like you're right. The, the shoe, shoe is, is on the other, on the other foot. foot right here. Yeah. And, and <laughs> so at a police press conference right outside the school, Gail, you know, still trying to get back on her high horse, is mm-hmm. pretty much the one. Um, asking all the questions to the new chief, Chief Hartley, played by, who was it, Louis Arquette, the I father, so. yeah, the, the patriarch of the Arquette family? Of the Arquette family here, yep. yeah. Which is really funny because at one point, uh, Dewey does show up and he calls him, just calls him chief, and I just imagine, like, there's so much... Um, Call me fa- dad. <laughs> it is fa- father and son pathos in the line delivery right there. Yep. Uh, the police believe that it was an isolated incident. Just like everyone wants to believe, no one wants to believe that a fucking copycat serial killer is here. No, no one you don't want to cause no a panic. To, no one wants to scream, batten down the hatches. Yeah. They're coming for you. They're coming for you. They, they go, they're raping everybody. <laughs> Call the locksmith. Call the locksmith. <laughs> but on campus is the, you know, the group of Randy, Sydney, uh, Derek, Mickey, and Haley mm-hmm. are walking around. Mickey, he, Mickey, because he's the film guy, he's fucking videotaping everything. He's got a little camcorder with him Which practically think, at all times. I, I mean, like, that's a joke that, like, was almost dead by this point because everybody – there's so many parodies of, like, video at the time between, like, mid-90s all the way up to the mid-2000s. So, like, every aspiring filmmaker had a camcorder. Hell, there's even a deleted scene from Pulp Fiction where Mia Wallace uh, video interviews um, – Vincent before they go to Jack Rapper Slims that was eventually cut because it seemed like it was so played out by this point. However, but in Scream Two, we we were also introduced to the uh, the sisters that run the uh, uh, sorority that Haley is part of. Yes, uh, Rebecca Gayhart and Portia De Rossi. They are the two. Hallie, not Haley. Excuse me, I was mistaken uh, pronouncing it incorrectly. Okay. Yeah. But yes, Lois and Murphy, interesting names, played by Rebecca Gayhart and Portia de Rossi, respectively. They are the two sorority heads that Do are you want trying. To know it named Lois and Clark. Might as well, or Lewis and Clark. Fuck it. They <laughs> they ex- they expedite to get more members for their sorority across America. But yes, they, they're the ones, pretty much the the main sorority girls we meet. They're trying to get. Um, Sydney to join along with Haley and Sydney. You could tell she's just uncomfortable every time they're around, and they are o- so overly fucking animated. And as we were watching this, you were saying to me. So you've never met a sorority person, have you? And I'm like, no, because I fucking I dropped out of community college twice. I didn't go to real college. Uh, I mean, not saying that all sorority sisters like this. I'm not going to paint one in such a broad uh, brush like that. But um, there's some sorority like you'd rather paint those broads with a brush. I knew after I said that, I'm like, oh, that <laughs> like that was a poor. In the words of the Joker, very poor choice of words there, mm-hmm. and. But like no, I, I I've seen uh, I have friends who uh, were joining sorority and uh, it was like very cult like, and that's why my friends and we when we saw people who were joining fraternity we made fun of them because like you're paying for friendship right there. But their fucking performances are like something out of Clueless, man. It's like something out of a fucking comedy movie. <laughs> as if. But as you know, they walk away. Sydney, she sees a familiar face in the distance, uh, and... just wandering around aimlessly, <laughs> as he, and cluelessly as he usually does. It's Dewey. Yeah, I played by David Arquette again. But however, we have this very unique piece of music that's that's a needle drop here in this moment, because they're apparently at the assistance of Bob and Harvey Weinstein. Maybe it was just Bob that they wanted a specific theme for doing, and they didn't like the music that Marco came up with, and so they took this track from Broken Arrow, played by uh, performed by Hans Zimmer. Oh shit! 
Um, like the John Travolta theme, like the boom, 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 boom. That was kind of like the theme song for John Travolta's character in Broken Arrow, and they just used it here. But the cool thing is, in, when we get to Scream 3, they kind of use that in their own theme. They kind of make their own mesh to create a unique Dewey theme by the time Scream 3 rolls around. But Dewey is very different now. He's been forced into retirement from the police force after being stabbed in the back. He uh, a nerve was severed, and now he has a limp, and his his arm doesn't work right. It's yeah. kind of like Doofy, in, a little bit. And he has like this weird, like it's always bent. His fingers are always out. Uh, he tells Sydney he, as soon as he heard about it, he was on the first plane out of here. Very conveniently. So, hmm. yeah, mm. but he gets there saying, you know, he wants to check up on her. Doesn't wish for her to isolate herself from the world, but kind of warns her that. You know, if somebody has that is trying to recreate the events in the first, it movie, may be someone you already know. Yeah, pro- and they kind of get off on that, and then she's like, well, "What am I supposed to do? Just drop everything and go live out, uh, live out in isolation somewhere?" Which uh, we'll call back to that later on. Don't worry, folks. But it, it, it is just a very nice. It's a it's a nice little reunion. Yeah, like this whole scene, I call this the reunions part of the movie because we're re- as an audience member re- reintroduced and re- I have a reunion with. Um, uh, Gail Weathers, and then we have Dewey, and then and then as as um, as Sydney catches up with the group and say who's that, uh, she's confronted by Gail, yeah, who says hello, you know, asks how the book is because fucking she's written another book exploiting her life basically. You Again, can tell, you can tell Sydney kind of just wants to stay the fuck away from Gail, even right. though even though she did say earlier when they first saw her at the at the she press says, conference she, she saved, saved our kind, lives, she saved our lives. Yeah. But apparently Gail has a bit of an ulterior motive. Apparently she has brought Cotton Weary there to reunite them. Unbeknownst to Sydney. Unbeknownst to Sydney and wants to get a freaking word. Like this is all impromptu. Like like fucking the cameraman's recording this while she's talking into a fucking microphone and Sydney's completely caught off guard. See and that where she says reflect on everything that's happened in the past two years. Yeah. The previous year being the events of the first scream and the year before that being the murder of Maureen Prescott. So right. this is why I, that right there is why they say, why I get the feeling it's a year later. Yeah. I kind of, like I said, I kind of always felt that the chronology of the series was very much in line with the actual release of the films. Mm-hmm. One year for scream two, three years for scream three. And I always thought the two years was the in, two years between the events of scream movie, scream one and scream two. It makes more sense, you know, that mm-hmm. all these things could have that, that a fucking move. Well, I mean, look how fast this, these, that these movies were made. True. With Stab. You know, look how fast. I guess if you're motivated to write a book, you could get it out pretty fucking fast. True. And who we don't know exactly. Uh, it could have been like the, the start of school for Sydney that of her senior year. Yeah, this could be the first semester for all we know. This could be her first semester of college, you know. I mean, it's still warm weather and everything like that. I mean, but the leaves are green, so this kind of looks like it's Midwest, so I would guess. It's probably second semester, if I had to guess. Yep. And... That um, Cotton just wants to have like forgive and forget, just wants to get on with our lives, everything, and and Gail's trying to provoke it, and Sydney backhands hits her again, knocks her out again, and Cotton's like, wait, whoa, 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 wait, where's she going? Wait, I thought this was arranged. Yeah, Cotton wants this big fucking interview where he could get his fucking face in the public again. Yeah, that he that he and Sydney can have this hot their... topic of them having this big reunion. You know, right. the, the the man who was wrongly accused meets his accuser. What happens? Dun, 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 film dun. at eleven. Yeah, you know? and and then um and rather than a movie a week, it would end up uh, it probably would end up as a movie of the week or something like that. And I, I do like Lee Schreiber, who's like he like you tell he want he's genuine wants to. Um, make uh, amends between he and Sydney, but you definitely tell he's like, 
he's still playing towards the camera. Yeah. He still, he still like wants to goad them into like, trust me, like like me here. But what we could also see is that when he doesn't get what he wants, when he doesn't get these interviews, he kind of there's a degree of frustration building up. There, there is some anger there. There's and, some anger there. And and I would say it's it's somewhat justified because of the fact that he did spend a year in prison because of this woman here, and he was falsely accused. But like he has said that like oh he's just trying to move on, but it's. That's still a long time behind bars if you're an innocent person. Yeah. So Gail storms off, pissed off that she didn't get away, and she runs into Dewey. Dewey is not exactly happy to see her because he doesn't like that she's taken advantage of Sid again. But also, apparently, in her book, she made Dewey out to be uh, a complete fucking bumbling jackass, a, a, a Barney Fife. Yeah. And he's reciting, like, actual pages where, you know, she says he oozed with inexperience and called him a Barney Fife-ish, you know, person. And then there was one when uh, – this is another thing that just bothers the fucking shit out of me. Th- this fucking – little rant? This little rant he goes on where he's telling her she's a money-grubbing, you know, fame seeker who is a cold storage shed where her, her heart should be. And then he goes on this one fucking – well, he says no offense needed. And then he goes on this one – How did you know says, my dimwit experience was merely a subtle form of manipulation used to lower people's, people's expectations, expectations, thereby enhancing my ability to effectively move in any case, given situation? And he does it with just such fucking goofballness. Like, this is not how people talk. I can buy it because that's a year's worth of frustration. I imagine everybody in Woodsboro making fun of him because of his portrayal in that book. And how he fucking ended up in a fucking ambulance at the end. He was the only one that didn't walk out on his own two feet. Yeah. That's, that lived. He had to be carried out. Right. And so, like... But, like, he, even if you're still into this chick and you're pissed off at her... Fucking like you don't say, you don't say that. No, that's like so unrealistic goofball bullshit that like I I cannot fucking buy into it. You mean you've never been mad at somebody and it's like you had to get everything off your chest and then you immediately felt better once it was done? I have, but I've never fucking said it like that. I've been like, you motherfucker, let me tell you something, piece of shit. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, but I I enjoyed the comedy of this little rant here, and it's something that I've obviously remembered to this day. I but... think it's fucking dumber than a bag of hammers. <laughs> you saying that I'm dumber than a bag of hammers? Yes. Oh. But so am I, because I choose to spend my time with you. Yeah, that's true. Oh. Oh. <laughs> It's not how people talk. It's a movie. Yeah, I know, but movies are supposed to be a, re- a reflection of real life. And, like, if I cannot feel – when I'm brought into this world – I'm sure Star Wars is like that, too. Yes, but if I'm brought into this world and I cannot relate to what's in this world, fucking I don't feel attached to it. I can relate to a guy like Han Solo because there are people walking around w- with Han Solo's general swagger and attitude. I can relate to Luke Skywalker because – and it, it, deep down in all of us, you know, we all have these ideals. We want to escape this, you know, just regular life of work and go on to do bigger and better things. Mm-hmm. Here, when you're talking like a fucking horse's ass, <laughs> which is why I, I couldn't get into the prequels, because I'm just like, nobody talks like this. He was getting his wrestling promo uh, time in right now. That's what he was learning to do right here. When well, go on with that was up. not a world champion caliber promo. He, <laughs> it's a good thing he was an actor, because he would have failed promo class. Oh, definitely. And so after that... Would, like, you, would you hear Stone Cold Steve Austin saying, maybe my oozing ineptitude was a mere facet of my something or other, you son of a bitch jackass. Go and drink some beers. 
No, but I see the Miz saying something like this. So I could not see the Miz saying something like I see the Miz saying something smarter than this. Oh, you, you're giving the Miz a lot more credit than I do. No, I'm just giving this no credit. <laughs> That's what I'm giving. But, like, just like the, the, the hot temperedness is, like, it, it is still charming to Gail here, and she tries to apologize, and he's not ready for oh, that. Oh, he recoils when she goes to, like, you know, touch him yeah. and give him a big kiss. And then he's like, he's like, I'm sorry, I misjudge you. And but he does give her a compliment before he leaves, saying he's like her new hairdo. He enjoys the streaks that she has in her hair, and then moves yeah. on. He has this like, well, he says, I'm sorry, I misjudged you because he's clearly disgusted with her, but has a really fucked up way of expressing it. Yeah, like I've I, fucking there's been like people I girls I was into that fucking you know did something mean to me and I fucking let him know what it was and I let him know not by fucking bumbling jackass. That was more doofy than Dewey. <laughs> yeah, that, 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 I can I agree to that. And so then we cut to later that night when Sid is actually taken to the sorority party by uh, Hallie and um, this is one of the two places also shot in Pasadena. Like the sorority houses were shot in pa- Pasadena, California. Really? Yeah. And Matthew Lillard is in the background of one of these scenes. I'll point him out to you later. Oh, shit. And, and when we get to it. And so... And Sydney is like not feeling this whatsoever. No, and even like her her attire is like is clashing with everybody else's there because <laughs> She's everybody like all black and everybody else is very like very vibrant right here, very primary colors in terms of their outfits. But while that's going on over at the Omega Beta Zeta house, yeah. which is now empty, we're cut come back to a uh, Cece from film class earlier. She mm-hmm. apparently is the DD for the night. Yeah, so she has to stay at home. She's watching Nosferatu, mm-hmm. and you know she's talking on the phone with whoever. She gets a call. From a strange voice. Ooh. A strange but familiar voice, believing it to be her boyfriend, Ted. Yeah, but it's actually when a stranger calls. It's actually when a stranger calls, and he's not asking if she checked the children. <laughs> so he gets a little bit more and more threatening, like Ghostface does. You right. Know? It, it usually starts out kind of flirty and then transitions into the fact that like he is like being kind of creepy here. And then it finally asks her, do you want to die tonight, Cece? Do you want to die tonight, Cece? But then when... Uh, Cece goes to lock up the house. That's when she starts hearing things upstairs, and she yep. does the things that she's alone at this point. And this is where it's starting to get kind of creepy here. This was actually the scene in the movie that I was creeped out the most by when I first watched it. Because I also had this in pan and scan when I was watching it. And, like, Cece, you know, she uh, she's on the line also with one of her friends that she was talking to. She tries to get in touch with campus security, but she can't get a hold of them because she has to go outside. Now, this was the old 90s cordless phones. I mean, cordless. I, I'm looking at a cordless phone in my house right now mm-hmm. as we record this. I mean, you still go to Best Buy, you'll still see cordless phones. Yeah, you still go anywhere. But she got too far away from the, uh, what is that thing called? The base, the hub? Yeah, so the cradle. Lo- the cradle. She lost reception. She couldn't get in touch with security. And one of her housemates comes back in. We, a false jump. we do have a false jump yes. scare there here. Now, the part where I got scared the most was we have this big wide shot when Ghostface calls back. And this is interesting, too, to let you know that there's more than one killer. But when Ghostface calls back, the uh, roommate picks up originally, and he says, oh, it's Ted. But while this is happening in the background, we see Ghostface sneak in through the front door. Now, I watched this in pan and scan, and mm-hmm. that part was cut off. So we literally just see him walking into frame. Ooh. Yep. And, and it, into the background. That kind of like, I got chills watching that as a kid. I had to turn it off for a little while. And it's curious because when we hear him speaking, especially when we watch him widescreen, we know his hand is not up to his ear. So it's obviously both killers working in tandem yep. at this moment. That's our first real clue that we have two killers. Yeah. Now, um, her roommate told her to set the alarm. And clearly we know that Ghostface heard it because he tells Cece, don't forget to set the alarm. And this is when, we, and when she turns the camera, when she hears noise, and we see, like, like she's already starting to tear up. And at this moment here, it's like she looks like a little girl right here. And it kind of, 
it hurts me a little bit because of the fact that I'm a huge Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Slayer fan, and I just feel like, oh, if this is the real Buffy, she would just tear him in half at this point here. But obviously it's not, and when the phone rings once again, boom! Because her back is to her closet, and that's when Ghostface and the Klutz himself comes out. Oh my god, and he's fallen over everything more than anything else. I think a lot of this... The parodies in Scary Movie came from this movie. Right. I mean, a lot, a lot of the... Throwing the bicycle at him down the stairs, throwing the <laughs> potted plant. He runs into a table. That's what I'm just imagining. I'm thinking of Scary Movie when uh, Sydney's going up the stairs and she throws the, the her grandma. And, <laughs> and, 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 <laughs> grandma! And then the piano. And that's when the piano crushes her grandmother at, at the bottom of the stairs. And and so... Uh, she, she gets to the top of the stairs, gets thrown through like a uh, door where now the fucking alarm is going off, so Ghostface has to act quick. He stabs her twice and throws her off the balcony. And, and it, she it, plummets faster than Sarah Michelle Gellar's career after oh, Buffy. Oh, it's true. But she's married to Freddie Prince Jr. and they have a happy marriage, so I can't I can't really knock her right there. And, like, it is... She has more money than me, so I can knock her. Yeah, <laughs> and, 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 like, okay, what do you, how do you feel about that kill right there, that, that set piece? Well, I thought it was really cool as a horror movie goes. Um, as we will see, there is a meaning to it. Yes. Like, not only did he want to create a diversion right here, mm -hmm. which we will also get into momentarily, but I, I thought it was really cool. It had a very old school slow burn mm -hmm. to it. It was the only part of the movie that outright, like, creeped me out when I was a kid. Right. Watching it. So, very effective, and I liked it. Yes. But, good. I, I have to agree, too, and the fact that, like, the house is so big, it's like you have these huge rooms and everything, you wonder, like, oh, wait, how the hell is she... Like, she'll see him wherever he comes from. Like, you feel like there's a false sense of security right there. It's not like this tiny, cramped apartment with, like, very thin uh, thin hallways that you think, like, oh, it can pop out of anywhere here. Like, you think, oh, she'll be safe, the security's on, everything, but, no, it turns out to be very effective here, and you're right, I... I when I watch this now, I can't help but think of scary movie and like the trying to get away from the killer. And we learn a lesson that when you come in, back in, make sure you close the fucking front door behind you. Yep, you dumbass. And so when we come back to the, the uh, party, the sorority party here going on here, that like there is Matthew Lillard is in the background. He's got uh, he's got bleach blonde hair and glasses, so you can't really tell it's him. He's a little out of focus. It wasn't until this viewing that I saw him like when Sydney is talking to the uh, sorority sisters there. But and, and the funny thing is that uh, Mickey and and Randy are continuing their a sequel argument here. Yeah. Mickey gets turned down by Haley for a dance. Uh, Randy's just getting turned down by everybody because he's trying to offer cocktails to people and nobody really wants it. Yeah, I'm sure. Like, yeah, um, offering women drinks, uh, that doesn't look suspicious whatsoever right now yeah. or anything. Derek shows up at the party. He's trying to, uh, he's trying to calm her down. Yeah, this. because uh, the, the fraternity that he's a part of is affiliated with the sorority, so it would just be a match between Henry if Sydney would join. Yeah, but of what happened at Omega Beta Zeta, Cece's death has now attracted everybody. The cops are on their way. Everybody's leaving the freaking party to go check it out. And the cops arrive like it's a deuce of hazard, like, yeah. going around the corner right there. Them Duke boys, <laughs> they know something's brewing there. And I remember watching the behind-the-scenes uh, moment of here. Like, there's a wide shot that I didn't use where the kids are coming down the stairs from the sorority house. Somebody has a little, like, dog with them. Apparently, it was Lee Shriver's dog. And like, he's like, hey, can we put him in the movie? And I'm like, fine. And it's like, they, they run the take, and then somebody's got, like, a video camera and videotapes. Lee Schreiber watching the monitors is, like, so excited. Like, oh, my dog is doing so well right here. It is pretty funny right there. But apparently the coroners make quick fucking work because they're when uh, the press starts arriving, Debbie Salt is, like, the first one to arrive there, and they tell her, oh, you know, exactly what cause of death was, you know. 
She gets there. Gail gets there a moment too fucking late. Yeah, uh, suspiciously late. Debbie's almost kind of like rubbing it in, saying like, "Oh, I gotta go. I have a deadline." Like she, like she she scooped her. Yeah, she scooped her. She took the story right from Debbie. And and, and the fact that like Gail's never been in a weak position like that. She's always been the dominant like reporter in there, and, and but now she's being. She's being outdone by a local uh, news reporter there, and so she's like, oh, wow, she's feeling the sting here. And Dewey's fucking rubbing it in, saying, you're probably happy about this, right? Because it's another story. So yeah. G- Gail, Gail's trying to be old Gail, yeah. but old Gail is not what she used to be. And the fact that like his, uh, her uh, cameraman uh, is... Very hesitant yeah, and to do anything. Right, because like he is like his most big thing that he did is like, he videotaped the bingo, bingo finals, finals, and so... Uh, before this, anyway. <laughs> before. <laughs> oh, we let that pun hang there. Okay, and so, and, and, but like, also, like, Dewey's being kind of a dick there. He that, that's a, a real. Well, when someone refers to you as Barney Fife, and you used to be a police officer, but he's also being unnecessarily suspicious right here. I know he's supposed to just kind of set the suspicion that he is could be responsible. And Derek and Sydney back at the there the sorority house they were in, they go to leave. Sydney's got to go get her jacket, but the phone rings. Yeah. However, this is not your home. Do not answer it. Do not answer the fucking phone. She chooses to anyway. It's like the predator. Like if you don't have any weapons on you, you would not consider you a threat. Do not answer the phone. Yep. Derek walks off. You know, thinking she's right behind. But this is why I really love this moment here because it's all done in one shot. That we follow her from inside the um, the living room to the like entrance. We see the door open. We know where the geography is and where Derek is. We follow. We go into a close up of Sid as she answers the phone. Talking to Ghostface, and she's it's like... Ghostface on the line. And she says, uh, why don't you show your face, you fucking coward? And then and that's the moment... My we, pleasure. And we whip pan that he goes, this is right there! And, and the close. front door is closed. He's got he's locked Derek out. Yeah, and th- another image that it's always been come from when I ever think of this movie is when Derek goes to the door trying to get in. And he stabs through it. And almost says Derek... Miss- and, just, just missing Sid and just missing Derek on the other side. Yeah, but also my favorite uh, Ghostface Pratfalls right here. <laughs> when he trips over a giant fucking lazy boy. I mean... Like, he flies, man. He's lucky he didn't go... F- fucking faceplant and break his nose when we did shot the video for the promo for the series here you were like hesitant running down the hallway uh with at full that, speed at full speed because shit on and like you had your giant like doc martin boots or your mm-hmm. uh, on and everything and you like you had to come on you have a you even had a retractable blade to stab me you were a little nervous about you were going to do that or not go too fast or run into the wall or something yeah you were worried about being uh fast and too intense Faster and more intense. Yes, too fast, too furious and everything. But anyway, Sid makes it out the back door that everyone was hanging out by just, you know, minutes earlier. On the patio. The patio door. And back there, Derek manages to make his way around, and he decides to go in after him. And confront Ghostface, which is a very stupid idea, and then Dewey is... And Dewey comes hobbling along (laughs) and runs after What the fuck? Like, that's another thing about Dewey. It's like, he always goes in after It's like, what the fuck are you going to do? You got one bad arm and one bad leg. (laughs) Like, what's he do? Just, like, flail himself at him? I guess so, because if he can't fucking feel the limb, it doesn't matter if he breaks it over the guy's head. And I remember the commentary track here uh, for... um, that uh, Wes Craven says that, like, David Arquette made the choice that, like, he still holds his hand out like he's still holding a gun here. Like, he that, that that's what his natural instincts would have, that he would be holding a gun in the situation. But obviously he's not because he's not a cop anymore. Yep. So Dewey, inspecting the house, sees a little spot of blood right next to one of the doors. And goes through it. Very quietly goes through, goes through it, and there's Derek sitting on the floor. His arm has been badly fucking slashed. 
and Derek says he just slashed me and ran. Dewey goes to the front of the house. The front door is open, and uh, Lois and Murphy are there mm-hmm. saying, oh, is everything okay? Just bit very curious. Oddly. So he goes back in, tourniquets the fucking arm. And But, like, wait, Ghostface encountered somebody, and he didn't die? Yeah. And nobody saw it. Looking a little weird there. And so we cut to the hospital. We have a West Craven cameo in the background yep. as addressed as a doctor. doctor. Uh, Mickey and Haley are there, you know, talking about uh, they were questioned by the police. So Mickey sits with Sid, you know, tries to, like... Comfort her. Tries indeed. to comfort her, tells her... She t- says how she knew that this shit was going to happen. She knew it was going to come back. Saying saying how, like, Derek could have been killed. and She's really feeling like she need. This is why she isolated herself, because she didn't want anyone to get fucking hurt. And he's like, we're all here for you no matter what. And it's just like, the only thing that needs to happen is Derek needs to learn that you can't be a hero in the 90s. I mean, why would you go back in that house? Yeah. Uh, which, the, which, which is a good question that Sydney ponders right there. Yeah, and the doctor even says, you're lucky there's no nerve damage. Like, apparently he just got... Cut and ran. Cut and ran. And even the police ain't fucking leaving. They're saying, there's lucky... He didn't kill you. So However, obvious. Dewey's not going to uh, dance around the bush. He's going to attack this situation head on. Mm-hmm. He's saying it's a shame you got away so easily. And Derek even says it's a shame you got there too late, right after he disappeared. And I love this moment here where it's just the close-ups of everybody looking at each other, suspecting each other here. And they're like, <laughs> and Dewey's response, yeah, it is. It's, it's, it's like somebody insults you and you don't have a good comeback. You're just like, yeah. yeah. I know you are, but what am I? <laughs> Wait, you say that Dewey is like Francis from PB Herbert? Like, I, I think, know you are. Not, I think Dewey's I? a fucking goofball. <laughs> he is Officer Doofy in this movie. Is that what you're saying? Yes, he has gone full Doofy. You never go full Doofy. <laughs> I'm sure there's deleted scenes of him with the fucking vacuum cleaner. <laughs> I told you that. The, the, the... And it's that much harder to use because of his bum hand. <laughs> That's all I hear. I don't mean to laugh, like the stabbing sound from the psycho score right there. Oh, man. I, I mean, uh, he's hanging out with a stranger from now on. Anyway. Back on campus. The following day. The next, the following day, you know, police are all over the fucking place. We get a nice, you know, big wide shot of all the reporters and everything. We see Joel reading uh, Gail's book, Gail's finally. Book. Which so, he probably should have done before he took the job. Yeah. So in the police station, we're there with the chief, and he's going over everything with the the, the victims. We have Maureen Evans, Jada Pinkett-Smith, Phil Stevens, Omar Epps, CeCe Cooper, Sarah Michelle Geller, And Gail gets the bright idea to ask, what's CeCe's real name? It's Casey, Casey Cooper. And right there, Gail and Dewey kind of look at each other. And like something Casey fami- Becker? Something familiar about it. Like in Casey Becker, the chief doesn't know what he's talking about, but Casey Becker, a victim in Woodsboro. Drew Barrymore's character. Yep. Stephen Orth. Uh... Well, Phil Stevens, Stephen Orth. Her boyfriend Ma- in, in the first scream. Maureen Evans, Maureen Prescott, Sydney's mother. Mm. We have a fucking copycat killer now trying to duplicate Woodsboro. However, this it's, doesn't really go anywhere. Isn't that's a th- And that's the thing. Isn't it kind of convenient that you ha- just happen to kill, and you happen to kill someone named Casey, that you kill two people whose names also happen to be- That's why I don't think it's convenient. I do think it's on purpose. I'm just talking about it from a writing point of view. Like, it's kind of far-fetched. No, because that, that leads into the motivation of the killer that he wants to repeat Woodsboro. But he gets everybody in such a convenient place. Like, it all falls together. These people happen to have been born with all the same names as victims. Like, I, I, it's funky. It's funky. And like you say, it goes nowhere. That, I'll admit so, that it really goes nowhere, because after this point, it's not brought up again. No, not brought up again at all. So it's kind of just like, almost, why bother, you know? 
Maybe it could have been one of those things where it's like I took like you know a couple. I took a class once on film. Yeah, that's that's me. My career. I took a class once on everything. I took a class once, mm-hmm. but. I know that filmmakers intentionally will drop in little things. They'll name characters and that give like little hints to their personality or little yeah. nods to things. And that could have been just that, you know? It's like, it kind of went nowhere, so why put it in there, you know? And the fact that like you hang a lantern on that, why bring it up in the first place? Like, I get that because it leads no because it leads into the motivation of the killer which we'll get into later on i, I i'm going to yeah. i'm going to fight you on this one but we'll come back to but it but just the simple fact that like oh what perfect luck there's a girl named casey who also has the same name as a girl that from the first movie that was killed and she just happens to be alone in this big sorority house at this exact moment that i need her to be what luck if you start taking crowbar to everything, we can take a crowbar to fucking Halloween if we really want to. We can take a crowbar to any movie like that. I feel, but just the fact that it doesn't pay off, I feel like we can. We're allowed to take a crowbar to it. You're lucky that C-3PO and R2D2 were not blown up by the Star Destroyer when they uh, ejected well, the just trade a, runner. That's just a shitty worker who's who's mad at his low pay and bad working conditions, where he's almost killed by fucking rebels every day. <laughs> I don't know. I just saw. A, I just saw a glimpse of TV. everything. Your job right there. Everything just one. feels so coincidental, and just the simple fact that it didn't go anywhere. Like, like maybe it would have been something if, if like uh, we find out later the fucking killer, you know, fucking made someone's fucking who was supposed to be the designated driver fucking put fucking Xlax in their coffee and they were shitting their brains out and they had to go to the doctor and 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 CC Casey is the only one who could stay behind. Like, mm. oh, all right. Like they manipulated these events, you know. Mm. I would buy into that a little bit more. It's just yeah, I think that's more far fetched. Not really, because well, when we get into who the killer is, it's I don't think it's the most far fetched. No, because like, I think the reason or one of the killers. Can we get into it now? Spoilers. I don't want to just yet. All right, we fine. Come, we can come back to this because Cece is very argumentative with one person in that scene. Mm-hmm. That's why I think she's chosen. But she also coincidentally has the name of one of the victims from the first one. Yeah. That's my. I, I, if she, if her name was Cece and it stood for like Christine or something, mm. I'd buy into it more. Be <laughs> funny, like she's just killed by fifty eight Plymouth at one. Yeah, she's killed by a fucking. He drives a car through the fucking wall and runs her over. <laughs> anyway, so the following scene we have the kind of the wall being built up between Sydney and Derek. Yeah, um, the chief has said that he's put his two best detectives watching her around the fucking clock. Yeah, she's very hesitant to get close to him. And, you know, he, but he loves her. He wants to be close to her. Yeah, but Billy loved her. Yeah, she's got, she's still got those fucking trust issues. Which I, I, I don't, I don't blame her and write that, but I feel bad, like, cause Jerry O'Connor is so charismatic that you feel bad for him, but like, you've had this experience with, uh, Neff Campbell at this point that you don't, you don't condemn her actions like of wanting to put distance between herself and him. And so it's just like, ah, crap, because the killer is doing their job of trying to isolate her both physically and emotionally mm-hmm. uh, when it comes to their actions. Yep. And outside after that little meeting with the police chief, Gail's trying to get on Dewey's good side again. But, of course, you know, waiting outside, there's Debbie who's got the rest of the fucking press. You know, she she's kind of like the passive-aggressive manipulative one. Trying, yeah. Like asking Gail all these tough questions in front of other press members. They'll make them go, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. What about that? What about that? Asking about Sydney's father. And then the one that really gets her fucking going is when she asks about Dewey. And that pisses her off. And she's like, Dewey's a good guy, unlike some of us. And like Debbie Stowe's like, really? I'm just saying if this person's trying to repeat Woodsboro, they might be, be from, from Woodsboro. That's you know? all. 
Like she's really good at just being fucking. I, I would hate. That, I would hate to be a coworker of hers. Why? Because she's just so. Uh, she would just be the passive aggressive one, but by the water cooler, just talking shit about you, but acting like your friend and saying like, "Oh, well, that girl like the." Like, he's such a good person, but my God, so many problems. Like, it's not like I'm her friend and everything, you know, but just all these things she does, it's just so bad. But, you know, I don't hate her. You know? We've all been there. Yeah. But this, then some, we get. Some, some of us don't leave there. No. But then we get into my least favorite scene in the movie. Oh, it's, it's, it's silly, but I don't think it's the worst. But they're in the big cafeteria area having lunch. It's uh, Haley, Mickey, Derek, and Sydney. And before Sydney gets there, Mickey's asking the question, like, maybe Randy's a suspect because maybe he's just, like, a little off there and mm-hmm. then, and that he could be behind it because, like, his movie freak mind just went off the edge yep. there. But, Derek, he seems lost in thought for a minute, and Mickey asks him about it, and he starts speaking some interesting words, talking about, this morning I woke up with this feeling. It's kind of, kind of sounds fucking familiar. Mm-hmm. And then he starts singing the rest of these words. I think I, I love, love you. you. And then he oh. and then he gets louder and louder and starts singing. He's Isn't singing that what fucking, life is made of? He's singing fucking David Cassidy, I think I love you, right in the middle of the cafeteria at the top of his lungs. Yeah. Based on what Tom Cruise did in what movie was it? Top Gun. Top Gun. And Which I don't remember him doing that because I remember Goodness Gracious Great Balls of Fire. I remember Goose plays that on the piano right before he dies because you want to make him feel really good and when Meg Ryan was his wife in that movie but like the love- whole cafeteria is going they're clapping with it one Which person puts a dollar bill in his fucking pants yeah because Derek jumps on the table to make a gigantic scene it, out of it's this it's a huge scene everybody's fucking staring and apparently like nobody could clap in time this is a real pain in the ass to shoot and that Der- and that um, Jerry O'Connell's like voice started going out because of how many times he had to sing this over and over throughout the day mm-hmm. and and, but it culminates with, like, that Sydney starts to feel the love between the two of them again and how he – the cherry on top of the scene here that he gives his Greek letters to Sydney, which apparently is a frat – No, note, no. Yeah, which I have no idea about, which I, apparently it's so that, like, his, his fraternity brothers is not going to like that whatsoever. So in the next scene, uh, Dewey and Jamie – Jamie Kennedy, yeah, fucking is. God, Randy, Jay, and Randy. I this people have too many names. <laughs> lose a couple in it. You gotta lose some of your fucking gimmicks. <laughs> but yes, they're at a rest. They're at a little uh, coffee bar. Yeah. Actually, no, they're at Baskin Robbins. Yes, getting uh, smoothies. And on the TV, their interview is an interview with uh, I think was it Entertainment Weekly or something, interviewing Tori Spelling for her role in Stab as Sydney. Yeah, and they yeah. show a little scene of recreating. Um, when Sydney ran into Billy after he was let out of jail the next day at school, and and that the uh, Skeet Ulrich's character is played by Luke Wilson. Luke Wilson. Billy is cl- played by Luke Wilson. And <laughs> fucking what I said about just like actors hamming their performances up here, I think it's intentional. Oh, it definitely is intentional. But hey, hey like well, my mom left my dad. I accept it. It's like that's how the cookie crumbles. Moms mom leave. leave. <laughs> it's just it's fucking silly. And they slapped himself on the head when he's done. S- stupid. And I guess it's not uh, part of Randy's Baskin's 32 flavors of happiness right there. I guess not. I, I, if, if, if that were an ice cream flavor, it would be pralines and dick. <laughs> and so then we decide to go over, like much like how Randy had the rules of a horror movie in the first one, we got to have rules of a sequel here. Number one, the body count is always bigger. Number two. Number two, the death scenes are always much more elaborate. More blood, more gore. Now, number three, unfortunately, gets fucking cut off. But as you said, it was in the um, 
the trailer. Yeah. Number three is if you want what Randy says before he gets cut off by Dewey. Number three, if you want your sequel to become a franchise, never ever. Think, and then Dewey, Dewey cuts him off by saying, "How do we find the killer?" Yeah. But what was it in the trailer? In the trailer that you could hear it if you want to go watch the first trailers of Scream Two is like, "Never ever think the killer is truly dead." Mm-hmm. And which I don't, I understand maybe just trying they want to get out of the scene a little bit faster, and that's why they cut it. I like I don't understand the why you would omit a rule with something that's become such a staple to the series, even even just one movie in. Yep. I don't understand that. So they go over all the suspects, you know. Of course, he's going to point at Derek first because he's in love with Sydney. He's the pre-med student who gets attacked and they completely miss every major artery in vain. And because you think it's like it's like Billy Loomis all over again. However, do you think that's just Randy trying to make Sid's Borman look bad? Well, immediately Randy fucking points out the other side of the coin where he says that could just be the, the killer. If he's trying to repeat things, maybe he's not going to do it exactly the same way. Yeah, it's it's lazy, it's tired. Yeah. And who could else be? It could be Mickey, the Tarantino, Tarantino freak film student. Which, I that hurts me a little bit. I'm just like, oh, fuck, that, that was me for a long time. Well, to be fair, Randy does retract that because he says, if he's a suspect, so am I, because they're both fucking film freaks. However, that's when uh, Dewey says, like, if, if you are a suspect, suspect, but if I'm a suspect, you're, you're a, a suspect, suspect, Dewey. He's like, you have a point. Okay. Let's move on. <laughs> so let's drop it right here. Because <laughs> I don't want to put the blame on myself. So we think uh, maybe... Hallie, his roommate, and Dewey goes with the whole thing that serial killers are typically white males, and this sort of goes against the rule, but not we- really. She's like a new Mrs. Voorhees, you know? The Candyman's daughter he sa- he uses. Yeah, like, those are examples that could be used as female villains in slasher movies. Um, but, like, who could... But, honest, who could really be? Like, maybe Gail Weathers. Yeah, but well, Dewey tries to pull him out of it too, and says these people are your friends. He says, "Well, maybe Gail Weathers. Gail, she's a she's vicious, but she's not a killer, but she is an opportunist. That's the whole thing." And Randy points out she could be she could be fucking putting out her next book. You know, this could be all be shit for her next book. Right, that she could just be doing this just for material for her next book here. Because yep. you imagine that she's not only since the movie's an adaptation of her book that she's getting uh, residuals from the mm-hmm. bo- the the box office of it. And this is a, a guaranteed sequel. And uh, him and Randy get a little bit heated on the suggestion of Gail. And because Dewey Randy's, feels... Randy's suggesting that Dewey's obsessed, but he says, I know obsession. I'm the love slave of Sidney Prescott, the unrequited love slave of Sidney Prescott. I have my love scar. And he shows where he was fucking... Who shot by Billy the, yep. in the previous movie. And then he questions Dewey. What's with the limp? And that's when Dewey, we find out Dewey says he's had a severed nerve. But that's when, like, he how he delivers that, the fact that he's severed very... Severed nerve. Yeah. Not, that was the name of my high school band, by the way, Severed Nerve. Um, That's my brain when I fucking watch this, <laughs> Nerve. Okay, I, I'll ask you, how do you think this compares to the rule scene in the first movie? Um, I feel like it. I feel like it's a huge step down because, I, for one thing, I don't remember it anywhere near as well as I remember the first ones. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, the first time we hear it, it's the first time. You know, it's the first time the idea of the rules of horror films are truly established within a horror film, you know, in a very mm-hmm. meta kind of way. If you do it again, you're just kind of doing it again. Like, even the ones he gives in Scream 3 about a trilogy, I remember those a little bit better mm-hmm. than this. But then again, you enjoy Scream 3 more than Scream 2. I confess I do. Yeah. and Send your hate mail to uh, no? twitter.com slash Timothy Rooney 2. Ah, uh, thanks. <laughs> I already, I already got anger, angry like tweets from the cultists of Zack Snyder this week. I don't want to need to. Do and what would you like to say to them? <sighs> Something that I can't repeat on a microphone. That's what I'm, I'm gonna say. Oh yeah, like it's not like they Embrace listen to Embrace the shit. hate. <laughs> Let your anger guide your feelings. <laughs> no, no words ever. 
No one's ever truly gone. No one's ever really gone. <laughs> no hate is ever really gone. Oh uh, yeah, but and then we 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 follow up the scene with uh, Gail and um, Joel, Joel talking about he wants to be out. He wants to get out of here because he's just not feeling whatsoever. Because he's reading, finally reading Gail's book, and say, "Hey, your last cameraman was gutted when you dealt with the situation like this." And Gail reveals she actually lied in the book. Like, no, his throat was actually fucking slit. So that doesn't make him feel any better, unfortunately. Like, yeah, we're good and slash the guy ain't in the union no more. That's his line. But I love the fact that the actor they had him um, playing Joel here ad-libbed a lot of his lines, and it's why it makes his dialogue feel so much natural mm-hmm. compared to the very wordy rant that you had against Dewey earlier on just in the movie. Like everyone's just weirdness in the movie just kind of turns me off. Mm-hmm. Their weirdness in their delivery. Mm-hmm. But that Dewey rant was just like, what? Are you human? Are you a fucking robot? Have you been hit with too many fluorescent light tubes? Not yet. Cat? Not yet. So we cut to uh, in a play rehearsal room. Sydney, I believe, is a drama student. Makes sense. <laughs> Her life is not dramatic enough. But yep. She needs she wants to be an actor. And they are doing a play on the fall of Troy, and she is the role of Cassandra, who prophesied all, you know, the fall of Troy, and no one believed her. Nobody she believed her. crazy. Yep. Which is very much... I feel a uh, microcosm of ho- the surviving horror girl. Yeah. Where she goes through all this, the in all these movies, the surviving horror girl, you know, the, the last girl, as she's called, goes through all these things and always warns of this danger that could come back and nobody believes her, mm-hmm. you know, because they want to get on with their little lives. They want to believe, oh, that's your sick fucking world, not me. Like you think of Alice in Friday the 13th, that mm-hmm. she's a much more aware of things that's going on rather than everybody else around them. She's never given a chance, mostly because, um, who is her actress? Oh, um... Anyway, the actress that played her yeah. was stalked in real life. I wanted to get the fuck out of that franchise ASAP, so they let her get killed off in the opening in part two. Right. So, had she stuck around, maybe there would have been more of that. Yeah. But look at, uh... Fucking Laurie Strode in all the Halloween sequels. In right. Halloween 2, you know, in that deleted scene when she's freaking out when the fucking phones are... Co- well, no, when... When uh, Jimmy tells her that, oh, yeah, we got him when they got Ben Tramer instead. He's like, he's not dead. He won't die. And then she's freaking out. Mm. Look at her in H2O. She's kicking on. Look at her in the newest one. Why did I go to Friday the 13th of all things? That's the funny thing. That's the that's the pull I use for. Uh... Whatever, because it's it, it's a very common thing. Right. I, I dare use the word trope. Right. Where the final girl, when she survives, is usually, you know, ostracized mm-hmm. because she survived this trauma. And she always prophesizes of these killers coming back, but never believed, much like the character of Cassandra. That's what, and now I remember why I used Alice. is because my last, one of my film um, theory classes, my final term paper was on how slasher films can be, can be, um, Rewarding to women mm-hmm. because even though like a lot of them are, are gutted and slashed up and nude, but it's usually a final girl is the one who's the one who stops the killer. And and I use both Laurie Strode and Alice from Friday the Thirteenth as examples of like yeah, Jimmy Lee Curse uh, smokes weed, she has sexual desires, and she still survives. Alice, we know she has had sex with one people in the movie and smokes weed and drinks and still survives. And everything fucking campground Geraldo who's hitting on her the whole time. Oh, and that, and <laughs> shirtless, I, I, shirtless booty shorts, Geraldo. I mean, like I chopping his wood. Like I have an obnoxious pun intended. <laughs> I have an obnoxious mustache he's pounding, right now, but he's the, pounding his, that wood good. Oh, and he abandons them. He like he ends up just like hanging out at the diner for most of that that movie anyway, mm-hmm. and like. 
like and his, his the, the Jeep, like the one of the most reliable vehicles in the world, dies on him. Yeah. Anyway, it wanted uh, to get away from him too, <laughs> more than Alice. <laughs> but I got A in that paper and I got an A in that class because <laughs> of that. Uh, but I, I love the scene here where we're talking to the, the director of the play here, played by David Warner, mm-hmm. who will always be the voice of Rachel Gould for me. And it's Rachel Gould, not Rachel Gould. That's how I pronu- That's how I pronounce it. He'll always be Professor Jordan Perry, and he will always know the secret of the use to me. <laughs> yes. Affirmative. Affirmative. Yo, right on, my man. <laughs> oh, great. That should be easy. <laughs> and his dancing to Go Ninja, Go Ninja, Go <laughs> in the crowd. That's so old person. <laughs> so old scientist. And he was almost Freddy Krueger at one point. There's even concept art of him as Freddy Krueger, yep. which was uh, which is awesome. If you want to see that, watch the Never uh, Sleep Again documentary. Ingestion is the only cause. What? You mean they have to eat it? <laughs> yes. Precisely. Yo, right on. <laughs> My man. Oh, great. That should be easy. <laughs> That's why we have the pre-fight donuts. Uh, uh, traditional pre-fight donuts. This is not the Secret of the Use podcast. We'll, we'll get to that eventually. Oh, now I know what a postal package feels like. <laughs> but within Scream 2, the way that uh, he's, he's trying, trying to give her a pep speech. About, yeah. She wants to drop out of this. She's fucking terrified. She's isolating herself in the world. She wants to drop out of this fucking play. But he's like, no, use this because this will make your performance elevated because it's very method. And he tries to give her the whole pep speech. You're, you're a fighter. I'm a fighter. I don't believe you. And he says, like, I don't. And then that's when definitively Sydney said to him, I'm a fighter. Yep. And convince, and then it says it convincingly. And it's just like, use the material. Use what you this know. This is your role, Sid. Yep. She's one of the great tragic visionaries of literature, Cassandra. She saw it all coming. The wars, the murder, the madness. And that goes back to what you were saying before. If you wonder if Sydney had subconsciously been preparing for this event specifically. She knew it was her fate and she embraced it. Yeah. Just like Sydney. She yeah. knew that this was her fate. And and that comes into play later when Sydney finally decides to stand up and fight instead of run. Right. And, and, and it also goes back to Halloween when we talk about fate, that fate was yep. going to happen with it. But also, we realize there's no understudy, so he really needs yeah. her. <laughs> which, which I like, that's a nice button to the scene there. It's like, I need you. All that shit I just told you, uh, I just need you. Yeah, exactly. I have no one else. That's how you deal with actors. Oh, man, that was that harsh. Um, oh. But yes, uh, so the play rehearsal's going, going quite well, actually. Yeah, I like this. That we And this is where... This piece of music that we hear during the rehearsal is actually done by Danny Elfman. Yes, Danny Elfman composed this small piece of music here. Yeah, and but which was kept off the initial album release of Scream Two, the or the score that came out because it. I think the Scream One and Scream Two score came out together, and it was like, like, it was like seventeen minutes of Scream One, like thirteen minutes of Scream Two. It was not that long of an album, and. They're going through this, and we, as Sydney goes through the play here, and we have this scene. We have these characters in these like the Greek chorus, pretty much. These characters in like brown robes with hoods and everything, scary masks. We have Zeus freaking descending from the heavens to judge Cassandra based upon her uh, visions. Yep, and now all the, uh, I guess they were the uh, the Spartans or whatever. The Greeks. Yeah. That's what these people in the robes are with their masks. They all have knives, and they're all trying to kill her. However. But, however, as she's doing this, she sees one of them. He's wearing the fucking ghost face mask. He's still got the brown robes on. It's an interesting juxtaposition to see. Yeah. And it was interesting, too, because when I watched the TV spots for the first, I'm like thinking to myself, what, what the f- is it like a fucking cult of Scream or something? Which actually put a button in it. I'm going to bring that up when we get to Scream 3. Okay. But. 
she's now freaked the fuck out because now she's surrounded by like all because these people. Because you don't know if this guy's actually there or not, or if this yep. is all in her head at this point. We don't know if it's all in her head. She's got all these people continuing their parts, doing this like choreographed stabbing and bobbing and weaving after it, her. It, in the time of the music and everything, to yep. punctuate it. And she freaked out and fucking runs into him and just screams and collapses. And we see him run out, exit stage right. Yeah. And everybody, you know, takes their masks off. It's, you know... Uh, the per- stage right for the audience, stage left for the performers. Yeah. Fucking, um, what is it? Uh, her uh, drama professor says everyone take five. The fucking two detectives run out to help her. And, and then we have, like, two of the sorority sisters are amongst the... Yep, uh, they were in there, too, yeah. interestingly enough. Yeah. Uh, Lois and Murphy were there. And she just freaks out and runs away. So, And, and this is so indicative of what, what's going to happen with Sydney's character going forward that leads her decisions at the end of this movie that goes into mm-hmm. Scream 3. And she's just hanging out there, you know, it looks, it looks like up in the rafters, but I think it's just backstage. It's just backstage. But um, Derek shows up. She's like, she's been very isolated. It's probably the stupidest thing to do because you know that this guy's in there. And she's completely hesitant and resistant towards Derek. Yeah, because apparently it was like, I guess, Mickey. Mickey was supposed to pick her up. And like escort her, I presume, to her next class or back to her dorm room with the detectives. But they they swapped because Mickey had to do editing for a film project or yeah, whatever. Conveniently. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, she just wants to, she wants to be alone and she's not really given Derek much of an option in this. And she, that's her choice to do and everything like that. And he respects that. And he, he walks away. He doesn't fight her on it. She's, but you could tell he's kind of hurt. He you definitely. He's be, very hurt. And, but you don't really know what's behind his it's, eyes. It's not like Olivia Hussey's boyfriend from Black Christmas or anything. Like, we'll talk Where about this takes a fucking microphone stand to a grand piano. After he flubs his. Uh, cut him a big fucking bill. Oh, Jesus. Like, that hurts me. As a person, I'm not a musician, but I can recognize a uh, craft when I see one, especially in a nice grand piano, and then somebody take a mic stand to it. it. That hurts. So, after this, out on campus, uh, Dewey, Joel, Randy, and Gail are hanging out. Gail is fucking chain-smoking up a storm. And probably the most infamous scene in Scream 2. Oh, yes. But... Joel decides, you know, they're talking about everything that's going on. Who could be potential uh, murderers here? How there were more, you know, victims before the home stretch. And once once uh, Gail brings up cameraman, Joel just immediately says he don't want to hear no fucking <laughs> dead cameraman. Yeah, and he so just he, pieces out. He gets up to leave to go get some coffee, donuts, Prozac, find some crack, special K. <laughs> X, not Malcolm. Yep. So he leaves, but... Gail keeps getting freaking calls from uh, I Bob, guess assistant of Bob, assistant of Bob. I guess it's her agent or editor or something. And it's supposed to be a her. nod to like I guess Bob Weinstein there. I guess so. But you know they're sitting there arguing about what the fucking next move is, and finally her phone rings one more time. Randy picks it up and says, "Gail's not here," and it's Ghostface asking, "I'm not interrupting anything, am I? You all look like you're in deep thought." So at that moment, they decide to foolishly split up. Now, I, I if. Ghostface said that he was wa- was watching me, you, and say maybe one other person, and we're out literally in the middle of a fucking field in public. Would you really want to get up and split up? No. Go look for him? I'd stick together and get inside somewhere. I would stick together. I would, A, stick together. If we're going to go looking for him, we'd stick together. It's like, uh, uh, it, it is, it's, the it's horror, kind of boneheaded. Horror movies, you got to make bad decisions. Yes. Yeah. So, they're all, uh, Gail and Dewey split up to go look for people with cell phones. Now, yeah. mind you, this was 1997, before everyone had a fucking cell phone. But it's beca- it's slowly becoming more and more ubiquitous. Yeah. 
that people have cell phones here, but it's the big flip uh, cell phones. Yeah, it's the bigger flip phones with the little pull-out antenna. So Randy, he's look running up to everybody who has a cell phone and keeps it, it keeps him talking. Keeps him talking. But the thing is, it's like it's almost kind of foolish because like Ghostface is watching you. You know, he's even mocking him when he when he goes up to the wrong person. However, he thinks he's safe because he's in such a wide area, and that's why I love in this sequence here is that Wes Craven keeps cutting to a bird's eye view of where uh, Randy is in, mm-hmm. in relation to everybody else. Yeah. So you think like. There's no way they can they can get it because you can see him coming from a mile away. Yep. Gail and Dewey are distracted by like people in the distance with phones, so they get further and further separated from him. And Ghostface knows how to freaking push Randy's buttons right now, telling them a nerd saying you'll never get the girl or like, be the uh, He's man. making fun of him because like, oh, he's the nice guy and everything yep. like that. And even though the nice guy stereotype is like, I hate people who say like, I'm just a nice guy and everything. I fucking hate that. Um, Randy slowly makes his way like he tries to catch another person he sees on a cell phone, but he's out like standing right next to Joel's van while he's still on the uh, the phone. Yeah. And he starts mocking Stu and Billy. Yeah. And interestingly enough, right when he starts fucking mocking Billy and calling him a pussy mama's boy, that's when Joel's van opens. Ghostface pulls him in. He was in there the whole time. Yeah. And, and it's funny. I, I looked up um, cotton mouth and cotton mouth kings. Suburban life. That's what's playing on the uh, boom boxes. People, yes. uh, As this van is a rocking. They, they don't come a knocking. Three students come right around the corner of it with the fucking old ni- big ass 90s boom box in yeah. hand. Rapping and dancing to Cottonmouth Kings with the volume jacked all the way up. They can't tell what the hell's going Randy on. Randy Rahim would be proud of them right yep. there. The Ghostface kills Randy, removes the costume, and bolts. And you, as a viewer, you're shocked because you're like... They killed fucking Randy. This can't be real. Like, is no, Randy really dead? Because you think of mu- almost much more than Sydney. He's more the audience. He's more of a surrogate than Sydney in that yeah. situation. He's and- often the, the drawing force into this world. And I know there's a lot of debate if they should have killed him or not. I think it's like, even though it hurt me the first time I saw it and shocked me. I think it's realistic to kill him. Yeah. Because not everybody can survive this shit. No, you got to prove the fact that you got to be safe. And it's something that would happen later on in this franchise, specifically not killing people that should have. Yeah, pretty much. But you, like, there had to be consequences to the actions that they couldn't just be like, oh, you're the A-team. You're not going to get killed. Yeah. But, well, just like in a lot of movies, you know, I don't think anyone, well, I mean, I guess people expected Han Solo to get killed because fucking everyone knew Harrison Ford had been wanting to get killed for at least a few movies. Mm -hmm. But Dewey and Gail realize, like, oh, shit, where's Randy? They got two separated from him. They go running back. They run into Joel, who has Dunkin' Donuts. They look over at the van. The fucking window smashed in the van because it got kicked. It's it's not smashed out, but the glass is broken. Yeah, it's it's like spiderweb at that point. Yeah. And there's blood pouring from the door. They open the door and they find Randy's body. And everybody just lets out. And it's like the screen. only zoom shot in the whole movie where we go from a wide shot of yep. them reacting just to uh, Courtney Cox screaming. I guess it happens when Randy uses the nice guy uh, defense there. That's why he gets killed. And Ghostface left his mask behind, which interestingly enough, wouldn't you want to take that and fucking analyze like sweat DNA or something? I guess the, like DNA was used, but like even DNA evidence was kind of laughed out of court at that point. Just look at OJ. Uh, oh, boy. Oh, I'm sorry. Was that too, was that too real? But anywho, uh, Sydney's in the library on the computer doing some 90s computer stuff, I can't tell. And she gets an instant message. She asks, you know, the guy next door, like, what happened? Because her computer froze up. And she's like, but like, how it happened? Like, oh, it's probably from one of the people in, in the... Because the, li- the library computers are all hooked up together. They're all interconnected. So she's looking around at people, kind of suspicious. Who, like, there's a couple that look at her kind of weird, like, what are they you see, doing here? Yeah, they see she's looking at them. And recognize her, like, oh, shit. And there's a message that says, you're going to die tonight. And Sydney immediately steps up in shock, and she keeps getting more messages. The police can't save you. And the, the two uh, detectives come to her aid. They Which, pull her this aside. This is genuinely creepy. 
that, that somebody's that closer and making messages. However, they leave her in the fucking corner and walk away. Well, they're back the to computers. an open doorway. They're back to an open doorway. And who's in that fucking open doorway? Cotton weary. Pretending to be a college student here with his like with his, his hoodie. I mean, I, I think of this I think of that meme of Steve Buscemi like dressed as a high school student with a skateboard over his shoulders, <laughs> like, How you doing, young fellow students? Yep. And Cotton he wants to finally he wants his fucking reunion with Sydney. He wants his televised, you know, reunion. And he's tired of it, he's tired of having Gail be the middle person because so far she's failing. So apparently, uh, Cotton has gotten a call from Diane Sawyer, yeah. who was big at that point. That yeah, point. I, I, for younger listeners, you got to turn the clock back a little bit to realize how big Diane Sawyer was. I mean, it's like her and like 60s minutes. Like those are the two biggest probably news programs that were going on in the late 90s at this point. Yep. And Sydney, she's very flustered at this moment. Cotton doesn't know that, but she's like really resistant. And he's like, touching her he's, like he's trying invading to get her, her space right here he's invading her space to get her attention because he because he's just perceiving the fact that she's just blowing him off not realizing the fact that she has just been threatened by the killer who's in probably near proximity of her and now that she's you know sitting here i guess very much being accosted by a guy that she accidentally put in jail who may have fucking bad blood for her yeah so she's on edge and he will not fucking let her leave and the fact that you have to realize she she has the process her mother slept with this man yep and so that's again the back of her mind here and all of her actions and like how he's getting agitated and he's more and more agitated. He's dropping F bombs and, he, and he's wearing black boots. Very suspiciously. Remember, if you wear black boots, folks, you're a killer in Scream. You're wearing black sneakers. I was making sure I wasn't wearing my black boots right now. <laughs> but Sydney says no, and she storms out and he follows in like a fucking moron at the top of his lungs. Making you know, a whole huge scene. Making a scene. And then the two detectives naturally fucking cuff his ass. Thinking that he, that he, A, if he's not the suspect that who could be a killer, that he's just accosting her right now. So they bring him in for questioning. The one cop literally, he doesn't say you have the right to remain silent. He just says, shut the fuck, fuck up. up. <laughs> Which, I mean, that probably happens more often than we would like to admit as if uh, police officers say that to each other, uh, suspects. Anyway. At the, you know, he's being, uh, interrogated by the chief and the, and the two officers, but they've got nothing on him, you know? Like he, no, says, he said, if you're gonna charge me, charge me. Whatever, whatever you're gonna use. But apparently, in the script, he was supposed to have a pocket knife on him. And he was gonna fall out of his pocket when he's being arrested here. So it was gonna make him look even more suspicious that he actually was armed at this point. Or it's not a pocket knife, like a switchblade. Like when you hit the button, it would like the blade would pop out. So it was supposed to make him look even more suspicious like that. But they just cut that out of the, the final edit. And while there, it's when Sydney finds out that fucking Randy got killed, and she's blaming herself. Yeah, completely. she laments the fact that it should have been her and not him because he did not deserve that. Yep. So, unfortunately, they ha- well, not unfortunately, but they have to let Cotton go, and Cotton keeps reminding them that he's an innocent man and yeah. that he didn't actually do anything, and they do inevitably let him go because they they've got fucking nothing on him. Yeah, like he even says, like, all right, you have you charge me with raising my voice in a library, in a public <laughs> library, yeah. <laughs> And he runs into Gail, who comes into the police station after hearing about this. And, and you know, even she's starting to have her doubts about him and saying, because don't he's act- stupid. He's acting fucking eccentric. Yeah, he's like a real fucking sussy, like suspect, a, man. Like a weirdo. He's getting angry. He even gives fucking Sydney fucking, I guess, Diane Sawyer's business card or something. I think, I, I, no, I think it's his business card because he hands one out later what, to- What, fucking Creepy People Incorporated Limited? <laughs> <laughs> Creeps R Us Limited? <laughs> One six 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 six. 
That's, uh, that's Don't call num- that number. No, no you, you'll probably get something really probably inappropriate. Remember the Beavis and Butthead episode when they went through the phone book fucking prank calling people? Yeah. They called the guy Harry Sachs. <laughs> and they just kept flushing the toilet on the phone and laughing at him. <laughs> Said he got caller ID one day, came to their house and beat the shit out of them and fucking flushed their heads in the toilet. <laughs> Uh, Harry Sachs. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Harry Sachs. <laughs> now I'm just here. The I'm here. The principal for oh, Beavis, Beavis and Butthead, and all you spelled. Oh, I tell you what, those boys ain't right. That boy ain't right. Get out of my. Them two boys that have been whacking off in my camper. Camper boys, Bupcoat and Beaver. <laughs> Our King of the Hill podcast coming soon. Uh, <laughs> I don't watch enough King of the Hill. I think you're a King of the Hill fan. I like it, but I I lost touch with it like after the second season. I think it's all on Hulu. Yeah. Yeah. It went on for a long time. Yeah. Anyway. But yeah, as Gail's leaving the police station, now the press are really fucking hounding her. They're even asking her how does it feel to be on the other side of the news. Yeah, they're, they're dropping all pretenses at this point yep. here. And then as soon as fucking Cotton comes out, they want to talk to him. They want He wants to get a photo with Gail. And Debbie Debbie Salt is there, of course, with the rest of the press. And then she's, she's literally like fucking patronizing. She goes, oh, how are you? Are you, are you okay? They like, call a toy with you and everything like that. Must be scary, you know? How does it feel like to be on the other side? Yeah, because, okay, you think of this scene. Okay, Gail gets accosted by the group of reporters and then singled out by Debbie Salt. Joel quits on her and leaves all of his equipment saying that I'm not going to work with you anymore. She gets bombarded three times in this scene. and She gets finally reprieved when Dewey shows up. And she finally fucking lets Debbie have it. She says, like, it must give you some sort of uh, charge to challenge me, but give it a rest. And Debbie kind of looks at her funny and then apologizes. Like, like, it was a wrong time, wrong place right there. Yeah, like, I'm going to kick your fucking ass, lady. But then immediately apologizes. So she runs into Joel and Joel just fucking quits because his van's been impounded. It's an official crime scene. He just leaves a video footage and fucking gets the fuck out of there. So Gail's world is in basically shit right now. Her world's going down the toilet like Harry Sachs. Her world is going down the toilet like the sound of Harry Sachs' phone <laughs> and the flushing. And but like this is when Gail says, like, I feel really bad for what she's done right now. And she, Dewey. and she wants to make this right. And this is what finally breaks Dewey here. Yeah, he finally lets his wall down. And finally learns to trust her. Gail broke the walls down. She broke the wall. No, uh, he broke them down. He broke the walls down. Hey, he was the WCW world champion and Chris Jericho was not. So. <laughs> oh, that's right. He wasn't. Not WCW. Sure, that doesn't burn him at all. Um, it okay. probably doesn't because then he became fucking WWE champion how many fucking times. It's true. Didn't he hold two champions at once? The Undisputed Champion? Well, that was when they merged the two. Oh, okay. He was but- the first one when they merged the... WCW title and the WWF title. Gotcha. And so when they realize, okay, if this killer is like relishing all the media attention that's going on here, he would probably be at all the crime scenes. And, and if all he's the- watching us, because Joel was the one taping all the time when they were around. And so they think, okay, let's look at the tapes and see if yep. we see anybody who who is a common threat through all. They go to but, the film department, which I guess just happens to be open. Dewey's walking around with a flashlight like he's a fucking burglar or something. Why didn't they just go in the police station and tell me they don't have a VCR on TV? Yeah, I was going to say, they can't just, like, turn around. It is, it is for the convenience of the story. I'll give you that. And so... I guess, but they go into, like, a big auditorium room. And, and I, I have flashbacks to so many... Uh, I, this wouldn't, like, a lot of my film classes were not taking it like this. This is more of a gen ed class. Where you had like the 150 students in there, like major sciences or maths or anything like that. My archaeology class was in a classroom of this size right here, with the um, 
stadium seating or like the amphitheater seating where it's like you walk in, you just, uh, stairs descend with all the seats towards the, the front of the classroom. So they have these cute little moments when they're putting the tapes in, they accidentally bump heads, they touch hands. It's all so nice. And then they put in her footage and apparently uh, the actual actor who played Joel, the video camera he was, was filming during these actual scenes. Right. Because this is, this is the actual scenes from earlier in the movie. Yeah. And apparently Joel was looking at Sydney and everybody and they get to the part where uh, uh, – he Your was favorite going, part of the movie? My favorite part, where Dewey goes off on Gale, and just the two of them have a quick, you know, laugh at it. They think it's kind of funny. And even Dewey concedes the fact that he was being very rude to her. She says, I was, you're cute, you're angry. Mm-hmm. And he's, and, uh, and like, this is when their kind of relationship kind of get their fire. Comes can, back. She yeah. never meant to hurt him. Fucking, so... And they, then they 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 can't they they, they do what anyone else would do in a crisis they fuck on the table or they start to. Well, I mean, we've all been there, right? No, I've never been in a crisis where someone was trying to kill me. Well, I felt like that when I was making fun of people on Twitter. Anyway, uh, someone, who'd you fuck on the table? Ah, <laughs> uh, that's for our Patreon uh, show coming eventually. His, his girl Pamela Henderson. <laughs> Hey, I'm that WikiLeaks, okay? I'm not the one who requested <laughs> Pale Edison to come have sex with me. In no, the... Pamela. <laughs> your hand. You never heard that joke? No. When you jerk off, that's your girlfriend, Pamela Henderson. Oh, no. I, I always thought it was Jill, like J-I-L-L. Oh, there's also there's that. Yeah. But the, we, we are interrupted with another TV turning on different footage being played. Yes. different. It's footage in a car passing by the line on stab of Maureen. Yeah. Uh, Rich Evans and fucking whatever. <laughs> Jada Pickett-Smith. Jada Pickett-Smith and yeah. Omar Epps yeah. online. It's um, CC being uh, stalked while she's outside. While the she's old. outside looking for campus security right before the killer went in. And then Randy. And then Randy being stalked. She says, that's not my footage. No. Now, what's interesting, and I will, when we get to the big reveal, I will elaborate on this more, but there was another character doing a lot of videotaping. Yeah. We'll, we'll come back to that. Exactly. He always had a video camera. He had oh. a video camera with him quite a lot. So they look up. Well, the video, the footage then changes to live footage of them being filmed. Yeah. Dewey and Gail, and they look up, and there's Ghostface up in the booth up at the top and with a v- video camera up there. So Dewey, like any half-crippled hero, goes running after him. Uh, like I said, I think he's just going to swing his dead libs at him and hope, <laughs> hope that he breaks them over his head, and that's enough. And I, and I love in the commentary track here when he um, – that um – Dewey gets up into the projection booth. It's literally Wes Craven, the camera operator, the focus puller, and the sound guy, like, hurled around the camera to do that 360 shot in there. So, <laughs> like, literally, it's like, imagine, like, oh, we, we got to be real tight as we do this 360 shot here. Like, oh, whoo, nobody saw each other on the camera? Okay, we're good here. Now I know what a sausage turning on a spit feels like. <laughs> but there's nobody there. in there. Dewey comes back. And Gail is attacked from behind by Ghostface, who ran uh, and, the word, and the words of Porkins, it came from behind. behind. But Dewey, trying to heroically get down there, can't navigate stairs, and he falls down the fucking stairs. <laughs> like, N209, navigate stairs, man. At, at which point, I think Dewey is the killer, because he has the coordination of the killer so far, you know, rolling downstairs, <laughs> running into tables, going flying over fucking lazy boys. <laughs> and then, but, like... Gail grabs a rotary phone uh, handle and cracks the uh, ghost face with it. And every time it happens, I say to myself, it's for you, and hits them it's with the phone. It's for <laughs> And that's when uh, Gail uh, hides herself in the uh, sound recording booths yep. in the back of this theater here. And this pie is like probably the second most tense scene in the entire movie. We have a movie. very interesting cat and mouse chase. Yeah, that's like mostly done in long takes here as they are – 
as Ghostface is chasing her throughout this sound um I'm trying booth. to think how the hell I ever watched this in Pan and Scan, because a lot of it's depended on that widescreen frame, because this is a 235 movie, I believe. Right, right. yes, yeah, it is 235, yeah. And fucking, it's just, they use the entire area, mm-hmm. where, like, she's sneaking around one way trying to get away, he's sneaking around trying to sneak up on her. She walks by, you know, the 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 window to the booth, he's there, she hides behind. The camera pans with him as he comes into the actual studio, and when he gets in there, she's gone, but there's a door there. So, you know, naturally, he looks around follows through, but she managed to get um, further, da- uh, further down. In the room, hiding behind the sound yep. walls here. And she sneaks through the sound walls. They got a, a, it looks like a bunch of movable sound walls for, I guess, whatever they need. You yeah, know, presuming whatever for kind isolation. of- For isolation. Isolation and whatever- um, musicianship like whatever like kind of equipment they want to record in there and when she goes one way he goes the other and then the camera follows her he's behind it's i really like how they shot it it's it's almost like going through a fucking maze yeah it, like it, a scary it, maze. It, it, how the walls are designed are probably made to look like a maze right there and she gets into like a little storage room in the back but there's that no, lock. no lock so she's in there you know hides behind uh a rack. A rack of, like, books or whatever. And Dewey finally comes to his senses and manages to get in without taking out any other fucking staircases or doors or anything else. And like a moron, he's yelling to her. But he sees her through the window of this uh, office. And but he can't hear her. But he, he can't she, hear her. She can't soundproof. hear him. She can't hear him. So that's when Ghostface comes behind, stabs Dewey, and, like, presses him up against the freaking... Uh, Sound booth glass, and he yells into the microphone to get her attention in the next room, and that's when she sees Dewey slowly being stabbed, and we really think that Dewey's finally bit the big one this time. This that was one of the most upsetting shots in the entire movie, seeing his face like, slowly slow- dragged down as he's bleeding. Yeah, Ghost- and because you, you think, oh, we lost Randy, now we're gonna lose Dewey too. Like, Ghost- Jesus. yep, Ghostface sees her. He goes to run to the room, but she pushes a ra- like a uh, rack of books over obstructing, you know, yeah, the, he the, can't get in now. He can't get in now. So he goes to break through the window of the sound booth and he can't because the glass is, has such thick painting, I guess, to, for sound isolation. It's not breaking. So he's banging on things, throwing chairs. And finally, when she huddles in the corner and looks away, he gives up and leaves. Yeah. He, he ain't winning this fight. So I love the fact that he tries to break it with his shoulder at one point. He just like, he just, boom. <laughs> like, if a fucking chair didn't work, what do you think that's going to be? You're going to dislocate your own shoulder, you I reminded, imbecile. Uh, I reminded Tim Curry from Clue. He's like, all right, I just have to break it down. He runs into the door and bounces right off of it. Yep. So back at Sydney's dorm, Derek's waiting outside by you know, the detective's car. Uh, early in the scene previously at the police station, they said they're sending uh, Sydney somewhere just to be safe. And her, not her, telling anyone. And Hallie's going to be um, with follow, go with her. So she's going to go to the safe house for the meantime until this kind of blows over. Yep. And Derek comes to say goodbye. But there's something ominous about uh, Jerry O'Connell's performance here. Or maybe it's just the music accompanying it, but I think, like, the, like the words themselves are sincere. But uh, maybe it's just like how he plays it. it is, he plays it so freaking creepy right here. I don't know. I, I kind of feel like he's coming off very nice like and genuine, saying, like, when this is all over, I'll still be here. I, I don't know if it's like he's trying too hard to be nice. He's maybe. trying to throw everybody off his path here and everything. But like, but as he's saying goodbye to her, we see some uh, robed figure walk run behind and like, in the background of the bush. It's nighttime, so we can barely see anything. She gets in the car and drives away, and he just, you know, stands there looking. But as the car goes away, more hooded figures behind, but they're wearing, like, brown robes, familiar brown robes, until one person yells speaks. to him, speaks to him, you, prepare to die. You gave up your letters. And it's all of his fraternity brothers. It's all his frat brothers dressed in the freaking robes from the Troy play, including the, the frat girls, Lois and Murphy. 
and you know, with their little prop knives. So they basically take him to a big party that they have they, on the they, stage. And they haze him at this point. They haze him. They strap him to the freaking, like, almost crucify him to the freaking uh, Zeus prop that lowered Zeus. From the top of the, the, top uh, of the uh, theater. They have him tied to it. He's in nothing but his fucking boxers. They're fucking funneling beer down his pants. And I love the fact on the commentary saying, like, if this was a true hazy, he would be totally naked. He would not be wearing his yes. boxers right there. He would not at all be naked. And, he, and he's worried about – that's all he can think about is Sydney is he's having fucking beer thrown all over himself and just yeah. being mocked. And he's being cut up with the prop knives at this point too. Yeah. Like they're cutting letters, Greek letters into, into him. him. And it's just ridiculous. And then but, – but however, we get to probably my, – tie my favorite sequence in the entire movie with the opening is the car chase sequence. Yes. Uh, as the detectives are driving Sydney and Haley away, they've got the um, – Divider fencing that you would see in like police cars. You would see it in Halloween when Michael Myers had stole the station wagon. Yep. They got the childproof locks in the back, but while stopped at a red light, they're joking about, you know, where they're taking her and saying, if we tell you, you have to die. But Ghostface comes, he breaks the fucking driver's side window, Cutting. slashes the throat of the one detective, dukes of hazards his way to the other side, <laughs> kicking the other detective in the face and just slamming his head repeatedly into the fucking car window. Surprising it didn't break. And, 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 Sydney and Haley can't get out because it's a cop car. It's a cop car with the child locks that can't open from within. Yeah. So he gets in, throws out the freaking other detective's body, the dead detective, goes to leave, but the detective that's still alive stands up with his gun pointed at him. Get out of the car, you fucker. Get out of the car, you fucker. And he fucking takes off, hits him on the windshield. And this is where, like, it gets so freaking, it turns into an action movie right here. You got the one detective with the gun on the freaking uh, hood of the car. He wants to take a shot, but the girls won't get down. No. He's afraid he's going to hit them. So Ghostface starts dry, like swerving violently, trying to get him off. He goes through like an area where there's road work, taking out like uh, what are those the fuck are those things? Dividers, yeah, and, uh, like um, detour signs and everything. Detour yeah. signs, the the, the and freaking, the sand pa- like yep. uh, like impact things, and like it culminates with them him crashing into uh, the back of like a truck that has a whole bunch of piping on it, yeah, thin and, piping. And now it goes through the head. It goes. Of, oh, it goes to the head of detective. However. It wasn't supposed to do that. It was supposed to go through, like, his chest, his heart, and everything. But on the day, it went to the head of the dummy, and they loved it so much. Like, okay, can be made a dummy up and had the body twitching. With twitching his- and holding his gun. When I was a kid and I had this on VHS, we had, like, the little, like, step yeah, like frame, and frame, by, frame by frame. And I sat here watching this frame by frame because it was you just You sick a- bastard. It was – I. but that's the thing, though. It wasn't I'm a sick bastard because I like this – I'm thinking to myself, how the fuck did they do that? Yeah, like, because is, as a as a horror fan, you're like, oh my god, you can't believe like, they did that. It was like the first real, like, shocking horror special effect that captivated me. You really? Know? Like, like, fucking people that love horror are captivated by special effects. Oh, totally. Uh, our wonderful dear friend Nikki is a fucking amazing yeah. horror and gore SFX artist. If yeah. she could do, if she had the budget to do this shit, I guarantee you she could pull it off. Totally. Perfectly. And, and that's why people like. Um, Rick Baker or Rob Bottin and Greg Nicotero or John like Paul Buechler, may he rest in peace. Rest in peace. Like they're gods amongst horror fans. Yeah, just because of the shit that they could pull off. And this is the first. I would definitely say this is the first real horror gore effect that just captivated me. But it goes back to um, rule number two of a sequel. That's going to be more intense and more gruesome. Yeah, and but this is when we get like. Now that the car crash has ended, this is when we get to the true suspense of the scene here, because they can't get out of the car. That's the phrase you got to remember, car crash. The car fucking crashed into the back of this truck, yeah. you know? 
And Ghostface got knocked out by the impact. He yeah, fucking the, the, because the, hit the steering wheel and he's on. Yeah, the airbag didn't go off. Yeah. Did and, they even have airbags? This is an old-ass fucking old car. Caprice? So. Probably not. Yeah. So Ghostface is out, but is he? So the pipe that took went through the detective's fucking head also went through the fucking dividing fence uh, between the two seats. Mm-hmm. And it took out a corner of it. So Sydney gets the idea. Let's pull it back and try to fucking get our way out. Yeah. Sydney climbs in the front seat, and this shit is fucking tense. Because it's, it's it's all slow. Because like, if you want to build suspense, you got to go slow. Yep. She tries to get out the passenger side, but they're up against the fucking wall, and so it's pain. They can't get out. You, can't, you cannot physically get out. So she has to fucking climb over Ghostface. Now she has an opportunity here. She goes for the mask, but and, and they they draw it out. It's very slow. She goes for the mask, but her other arm leaned against the steering wheel and beat the horn, and she startled. The and shit it's like the loudest horn in the world too. It's, it's like, those old car horns, and it's fucking startling. And then she's like, "All right, fine, screw that. I'm not going to do it." She just climbs out the driver's side window. That's she been can't broken. get the door open though. Yeah. So she climbs out the window. She can't get Haley out. So Haley has to fucking climb through this exact same way. And you think like, okay, you so can't you get lucky out, twice. You're not going to get lucky twice. <laughs> but she's able to get out, and they're able to run away. However. They run somewhat down the street where Sydney stops, and Sydney's fucking tired of running. No, she's like, no, I want to find out who it is, and runs back. But killer's already gone, and he took something with him. He took the cop's gun. Mm-hmm. As you can see, like his the cop's hand is now empty. But they even draw this out when Sydney walks back to the car. Yeah, it's pure Hitchcockian that we just go from her face and then her point of view as she approaches the car and the killer being gone. The killer's gone, so... She turns back, yells to Haley, he's gone, and the killer pops out behind all the construction equipment and kills Haley. And she's like, and Sydney's horrified and runs back to the two of them run like hell. Yep. Yeah. So back at the AV room, Gail finally emerges thinking that he's gone and runs into Cotton, and Cotton's hands are covered in blood. And you're like, uh, oh, so now you think as the audience, oh, Cotton's got to be a killer. He's covered in blood. He's wearing black. He's been acting suspicious the whole time. He says, no, I found Dewey. Don't worry. I tried to help him. I tried to help him. Doing what? Put it and back he, together? He looks at his hands like, shit. Like, like, yeah, like, like what'd you do? So, so uh, Gail runs out. There's so a payphone right outside, and Debbie Salt's on the fucking payphone, and she push, shoves her out of the way. Yeah, she checks her to the boards like she's a hockey player yeah, right she there. She says, oh, what was that? I had a story. I got your goddamn story. What's yeah, happened? The killer, it's cotton fucking weary. And she has this over, uh, Debbie has this overdramatic, cotton weary? <laughs> <laughs> Jinx, you owe wow. me a beer. Damn it. Now, back at the fucking um, theater room, somebody starts up the music and lighting in the play. Yeah. We're hearing the music that Danny Elfman made. And that's when Sydney returns to... Um, well, the VU meters are all the way up, so it's fucking loud. They're pinning the needles. Sydney approaches, and she hears all this commotion, thinking there may be people in there rehearsing, you know, whatever the fuck. She could theoretically be safe with, with the group right now. Yes. So she, she manages to get herself in. But can't find anyone. And she's like, she's calling out, is anybody yep. there? But nope, music stops. The spotlight turns spotlight on. turns on her. Because the spotlight is always on Sydney. It's yep. always about her. And the sets begin lowering. And the walls start closing the in. The walls start closing, like literally, like they're entrapping her kind of. <laughs> Much to the chagrin I made as a really bad punt earlier. And you like. Stared at you. Yeah, like everybody does. But. The Zeus set is lowered, and Derek is still tied to it. His mouth is fucking taped. He's, like, passed out he, by he's now. He's unconscious at this point. Because he's been sitting up there for how the hell fucking long. She slaps him to 
to uh wake up his hands are elevated too like that's how that's how you die from a crucifixion it's not from blood yep. losses it's, it's the hand, hands being elevated like that yep and uh she's saying the killer's here we gotta get here and he says where right here now ghostface approaches you know with with the roger l jackson voice yeah I'm, i remember watching this thing to myself how the fuck did they do this the, watch i bet you the killer's the person with the real voice you know yeah. and He's saying Ghostface is warning her not to uh, untie Derek. And that's when the Roger L. Jackson voice cuts out and a familiar voice says, don't you know history repeats itself? They both look back. The killer pulls the mask off and with a big head wound from the fucking crash, it was Mickey. And most audience members are probably going, who? Wait, that guy? Remember yeah. that guy? And he rips out the voice box that was taped inside the mask and goes, surprise, Sydney. Mm-hmm. Mickey starts making it out to be that Derek is his partner, saying that Derek disappeared on my ass. I've been here all fucking night. Thanks a lot, partner. Derek denies it the entire time, but Sydney is starting to second guess him. And he even says, come on, Sid, i got to have a partner. I couldn't have possibly done this alone. And Sydney's starting to have flashbacks of, of fucking- Billy Loomis right there. Billy. Derek's denying it the whole way. And he's saying, it's okay, Derek, we got her. Like, like Derek's fucking still playing a role. No, yeah. And he's like, no, no, no. Like, I, like, like untie me, please. Untie me. I, like, and, he's, and that's when Derek threatens, like, I'm going to fucking kill you no matter what. Yep. And Mickey fucking, and he, Mickey even says, what's the matter? Said you're experiencing deja vu? Yeah. So Derek gets pissed. I say he's going to kill him. And fucking Mickey shoots him. And this is like when the first applicants of CGI squib. In a movie, was it CGI? But at least the blood was. It looked like a fucking outer script because I see. I, I I did notice the like blood a was, bulge was, on his chest. was at least CG because they couldn't hide the appliance of uh, on, his bare bo- chest. on his bare chest right there. That's why Nev Campbell covers up right away. Yeah, but Sid realized she's made a mistake, and he even with his dying words says, "I never would have hurt you, never." And Derek dies, and Sid fucking realizes it was her fault. It was her fault. Not, not saying not to blame her or anything, but now she she merely feels the guilt that his death is literally on his her hands. On her, well, his blood is literally on her hands. And this is when this that's when Mickey starts to turn the knife in her even more by oh, like and he just starts to tear her apart verbally at this point. You say he's such a nice boy, you know, not like you're used to have. He's, Good boy, take home to mom if you had a mom. And and then she's like, oh no. You're just like Billy, and you're just a sick fuck. And it's like, but Mickey retorts to saying, "No, Billy was a sick fuck who tried to get away with it. I want to get caught because my motivation, my reason, it, I'm going to blame the movies." But that's, and this is where this falls completely the fucking part for me because Mickey wants to have. I, I, does Mickey want? I don't know. Does he want horror movies to fucking end? Does he just want fame? Does he want fucking? Money? He wants to be part of history. It's still very unclear to me. But no, that's the point of his partner, his real partner that's revealed in a few seconds, pokes fun at the fact like this, this, that how stupid and ludicrous that idea is. And then, uh, Well, we'll continue as we get to that. But, you know, like, it, and this was post-OJ trial when all of America was fucking captivated. Yeah, like she even says, uh, 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 Mickey drops Alan Dershowitz's name in this situation yep. here. Saying Bob Dole be on the witness stand. And this was when, like, violence in movies, music, and video games was really big. The Republican Party was very much against this. Right. Bob Dole unsuccessfully ran for president mm-hmm. that year. Was yeah. it that year or year before? Year before, I think. Year before. 96. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, and, like, he's going for uh, – Mickey just wants to I, – I just feel it's so fucking unclear. It's like why does he want all this to happen, you know? It's, I think it's satirizing people thinking that violence in movies causes real-life violence. But where does this come into Sydney, you know? Why can't he just go somewhere, kill a bunch of people randomly? Because he wants to make a real-life sequel. That's why he targeted her. 
I think you could get your ultimate goal done a lot quicker and more efficiently if you don't worry about the semantics involved of no, wanting to make a real-life sequel. I, I think it's just a construction of a story that they, like, Sydney was the main character in the, the first one. You wanted to have the main character in the second one because everybody loved her. I yeah, mean, but it's almost like he loves the film aspect of it so much that, like, he has to do it when really he's just complicating things. If you want to fucking blame movies for making you violent, just go out and kill a bunch of people. Mm-hmm. Don't involve. But no, his... he, he wants to put on a show. He wants to make it operatic. Literally, well, it, will, it will be because he's talking about the trials. Yeah, and how good trials like there. You could do that without having to wait for this person who survived a serial killing to you know come to your college. But no, because they wanted to wait for when the movie came out. They wanted to pair it up with that. They're like they wanted to literally point the finger at Stab, saying this is the response. This is the reason why I'm doing this because it's obviously time has passed since the. Publishing of the Woodsboro Mirrors by Gail Weathers. I feel like you don't need it. I feel like all you would have to do is just say horror movies made me do I guess it. And you could have a million you... people up, you know, gung-ho. Like, he's even say the Christian Coalition will probably pay for my for my legal fees. It's like, I think you could do that whether or not there's a planned release of it. Because these people fucking hate horror movies no matter what. Right. You could just be sitting there. You could watch a fucking horror movie from 20 years ago and say, oh, yeah, this thing made me kill. And then the debate know, will start you, again. You, think, you go back to Wes Craven's New Nightmare, the head doctor questions the fact of Heatherland kind of showing her child uh, Freddy Krueger movies and everything like that. Yeah. Why, why would you do that? It's like, like, of course my son knows about Freddy Krueger. He's like Santa Claus. Everybody knows that. Everybody is experienced with horror movies like that. And it's not horror movies, or it's not just movies in general is responsible for people's actions. I, I think it's the, they have a message they want to get across. It's just very muddled. I'll give you that. It's very muddled. I just, if if Mickey wants this elaborate trial about horror movies driving him to kill, I don't think he needs to wait. I think he could just go out, do whatever he does, say, fucking go to the fucking video store, rent something, have it in oh, your no. apartment. Think of it this way. The guy uh, in Aurora. Sh- sh- like the Batman he, shooter. The Batman shooter. He wanted to do that specifically because he wanted to be like the Joker and tied himself in with the uh, release of the next Batman movie. Yeah, but and that person's crazy. Mickey's crazy. We're not. We're, we're trying to we make are logic- dealing with crazy people. Yeah, we're trying to make well, a logical situation saying, out of a crazy. Dealing with crazy people, not stupid people. I no. think that Mickey's more than capable of knowing that if I want to get this level of attention, I could just fucking go out, do it randomly, and just say horror movies. But do you know how it. much like attention that would get because it is literally tied? It's with coinciding. It. Yes, it would get more attention, but I still feel it would get plenty of attention even if it didn't. Yeah, I know. I, I mean, but like you think of Christian Bale can't watch Dark Knight Rises anymore because of the horror shootings mm. because he's he has that. He can't. Se- he can't separate the two from them, and that's what Mickey's intention is for this movie. I guess. Anyway, so we get to Sydney uh, tries to get out of the situation by using the Greek letters that uh, Derek gave uh, her, and tries to fight her way out of it. But yep. much that doesn't she, really work. She basically out. like t- she. Ha- I guess she had the necklace off or whatever, and had it in her hand as her arms were folded, and she like whips him in the fucking face with it. They have a big, you know, scuffle. Sid- Sid's a capable fucking fighter. Yeah, but he's still armed with a gun. And, you know, you can't beat that. But uh, Derek's body is raised up. So we think, oh, the, the, the partner is there and is manipulating things behind the scenes like they've been doing the entire time. Yep. And then out from the door, in the, the set comes Gail. It's like, oh, shit, is she the partner? But no, out behind, Gail shakes her head and out behind her with, the other, with another gun is Debbie Salt. But Sydney, when she sees her, instantly recognizes her and calls her Mrs. Loomis. And you realize that she's not been any scenes with Sydney. She's not been any scenes with Sydney. And Mickey immediately identifies her as Billy's mother. Nice twist. Didn't see it coming. And Gail doesn't believe it because she's seen pictures of her. And Sid even says, no, this is 60 pounds and a lot of work later. Yeah. And, and Mrs. Loomis now says, no, it's called a makeover. So 
you know, it, like you said, like this isn't her being Billy's mother isn't totally fucking far fetched. She basically got herself an entirely new look, took on a different identity, and and was only around people that didn't know her. Yeah, so she could easily slip right in there. Right, and as she has fostered Mickey's actions here, like she's paying his tuition here, and like it was their plan to do this, but. Apparently, the Becker they met on the inter, inter, uh, we met on the internet. You know, yeah. web, uh, the, early days of psycho chat rooms. <sighs> was that even a real thing? Like I was on, like I was on the internet early. I first got the internet in fucking nineteen ninety six. But you're America not, Online. but you're not a murderer, so I don't know if you would be going to sites to find psychopaths. Or I don't. Need, well, my no, my thing is, were there even sites for psychopaths to find each other? Back I don't then? know. I mean, like people were like buying drugs to the internet very early on. I mean, like. Brock Lesnar was uh, buying his stuff uh, when he was an OVW th- through the internet. So Dave Mustaine was getting his pain pills through the internet. That's true. Like, only a few years later. And so I don't think it's not completely far fetched that there were some kind of chat rooms like that that but, you were able to find there. That's the interesting thing. Like there's an active, nowadays you need the dark web to do that. But there's an active serial killer chat room. It's like I almost want to think to myself, like, wouldn't somebody be policing that? Wouldn't somebody be policing that? Wouldn't that dawn on a fucking cop's mind even at that even in 1997 at this point and if mickey is an active serial killer who decided to become a fucking film student we don't know how long he's been there i mean that's why that's why i go with the premise the idea of that this is just a year later and this is sydney's freshman year mm-hmm. this and and randy's this could also be mickey's freshman year yeah this could have all been planned you know very recently right but the whole thing was was that she basically hired mickey to be like the partner in the muscle because I'm sorry, but I don't buy Jackie from Roseanne as a serial killer. Mm-hmm. Even though we know she does get her hands dear, dirty at least one kill in this movie. Yes, she does admit to Randy's killing because yeah. of how he talked about Billy. That's why I pointed out before that what he says about Billy then immediately gets him killed. Now, this is not the original combination of killers. No. The original idea was that it was going to be four killers. That it was going to be... Oh, or at least three killers. It was going to be uh, Derek and Hallie. They were going to be uh, accomplices to Debbie Salt. And that she was going to kill them. And, and Mickey as well. She was, she was going to kill the three of them and blame it on Cotton Weary. And saying that he wanted to get revenge against Sydney, and this is what happened. And that he died in the scuffle of it. That was one of the original ideas of the ending of this movie that may have probably gotten leaked online. And then we had the false uh, ending that Dewey's going to be one of the killers as well. And then we have this one, which has left people kind of agitated at the end of this movie that has this reveal. I mean, Billy's mother being in there and her motive literally being old-fashioned revenge, as she will say. But Mickey says, like, you know, how it's going to rock with the trials. And she... Uh, Mrs. Loomis then fucking turns on him and shoots him to death. Or at least we think to Seemingly. death. Seemingly. <laughs> Seemingly to death. But he gets one last shot off at Gale, who, like, charges to stop, and Gale collapses into the fucking pit of the stage. Yeah. So now we're down to just fucking Sydney and, and uh, Billy's mother. And she basically comes out and says that, you know, this is all about old good old-fashioned revenge. Yeah, you she never believed son. Mickey's plan of blaming the movies. There. Yeah, she, like... she, thought it was, she was just using him as, a, as means to an end. Right. So... I guess that's kind of where um, Mickey's whole thing. I guess you don't. Need kind of, to, I guess you don't need to really go elaborate too much because he kind of just was a tool to this person who, to this person who was pulling the strings, you know, in the first place. Right. Um. You know, she says my motive is as '90s as Mickey's is just old-fashioned revenge because remember it was the affair that Sydney's mother had with Billy's father that broke up their marriage, mm-hmm. made Billy snap, and 
fucking inevitably got him killed in the end. Yeah. So she has this whole plan. Everything's traceable back to Mickey. The cop's gun. Yeah. And even Debbie Salt doesn't exist. She's, she's, a, she's yep. a false. She's a false narrative right there. Yep. She doesn't actually exist. Like she, it was just a thing an act. Supposed, yeah, an act. So she could get away scot free. But and the whole plan is that like you shot Mickey and Mickey got one good shot off at you and she she is playing this very well with these I big fucking bird eyes these big cow eyes like. and, and, and like and she just and she slowly accelerates and I love the fact when Sydney makes a crack against Billy yep and she's like her off. and she's like was that a disparaging comment you made about my son and that's why they're like oh shit she like Sydney crossed the line there oh yeah. And, and, and then, like, but I love this scene here because it sounds like every parent that's saying that, like, it's always the parents' fault. It's never the child's fault. That the parents' responsibility that they, they can't their kids turned out to be uh, terrible. But Sydney also brings up, you know, to abandon him. Like she's saying, you know how it says to raise him, to nurture him, to be good. And Sydney says, and to abandon him. Yeah, and then, but she does not have her, uh, an answer to that. But that's when Sydney like attacks her with Distracts, a says, "Isn't Mickey supposed to be dead?" And hits her with a fucking bottle that's that was like, left there from the hazing. Yep. And this is when Sydney goes ape shit. Sid escapes through the sta- through the door of the stage set, locks it behind her, grabs a fucking fire axe, and she starts fucking hitting down the ropes that that hold the uh, pulleys to the lighting system. So now Sid is slowly collapsing the freaking parts of the set on top of this woman. Right, and then she starts turning on all the effects. Like all the all effects, you know, the fake lightning. She's even making the fake, like taking the a moment thunder. to do that. The, the fake thunder, the fake fire, and. Uh, Mrs. Loomis is, you know, poking her gun out the window trying to get to the Sid, but Sid's still dropping shit the on Sid? her. The Sid? The Sid. The Sid, yes. <laughs> the but Sid. Sid is still dropping shit and dropping fucking pillars, the 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 fake freaking uh, boulders and stuff. Right. From We're, the set. And, like, it's seemingly that's what's incapacitated here, and then everything goes quiet, so Sidney goes to check to make sure, but... Nope, she's still alive, she's still wounded, she's got the knife, she's she dropped was, the gun. And she is totally, like, out of her gore at this point yeah. right here. They have a nice little fierce fight, I didn't know, f- I guess all those years of being around fucking Roseanne Barr would make anyone a killer. <laughs> fucking pig. I, let me tell you something, I was sick of fucking Roseanne Barr in the early 90s, when she did when she did the fucking national anthem at the fucking football game. Mm. And she was, I totally forgot about that. And they that. were booing her out of the stage. Oh, man. But that's when seemingly that, um, that she's about to kill Sydney right there. A gunshot goes off, and it's Cotton getting the gun that was thrown into the, the, the stands. Audience, the stands. Yep. And he wants to know what the fuck is going on because he's very confused. Cotton, he's confused. He's pissed off. He don't trust anybody. So uh, Billy's mother has Sydney at fucking knife point. Using her as a human shield. Yep. Uh, Cotton sees Mickey's body on the floor and says, who's that? The other killer. And this is when Debbie Salt, Mrs. Loomis says, like, hey. She starts he, reasoning with him. She starts yeah, bargaining with him. And like, hey, you kill her. You're the lone survivor. You're the star. And she she sent you to prison for a year. Don't you want to kill her? Don't Have you ever felt like wanting to get revenge against her? She's saying, I could still help you. She's making an offer. So you and me, let me kill her. As long and, as she's alive, you're never going to be the lead story because it's all about. Sydney, you know, the survivor. And this is where I, I love Lee Sharp's acting here because you, you could see the wheels turning in, on him in this scene. He actually starts pointing the gun at Sydney, which and, after she says, I, she said, you're in prison for a year. I think it's personally, I think it's rather poetic that yeah. you kill her. So he looks at Sid and he starts pointing the fucking gun at Sid. And he's like, well, he asks Sid, like, hey, you know, she does make a valid point here. And we, we've been feeling the whole movie that this guy is a couple of cards short of a full deck. Yeah. And you think like, oh my God, he's really going to kill it. And this is how it's going to end. But that is when he brings up the fact, like, hey, I guess that Diane Sawyer Sorry, interview is looking pretty good right now. Mm-hmm. And she says, consider it done. And goes, uh, what? And yeah, bam! Billy's mother gets fucking confused for a minute when she says, consider it done. 
and Cotton then fires a gunshot. But they both go out of frame. They both scream. They're both laying on the floor, not moving. And so but for a moment, you're like, oh, shit, who'd he who? shoot? But Sidney coughs and gets up, and we find out that he killed Mrs. Loomis. He yeah. shot her. And even he takes like a big... <sighs> like, he just shot somebody. That's the first that time he's like... Intense. Yeah, like, that's how probably most people reacted. They shot somebody for the first time. Like, now he really has killed someone. Yeah. And that's when he apologizes, like, Sidney, I would never hurt you. He even gives her the gun. But I, I even like, like, Cotton gave me the gun. Like, yeah, yeah, sure, obviously. And then he goes to check and get, uh, see if uh, the, uh, Mrs. Loomis is dead. That's when Gail pops up scaring everybody there. Yep. Apparently it bounced off her fucking rib or whatever she Somehow. said. It's like, you can diagnose that even though you're bleeding. I, I mean, Just I guess, bounced off my rib. I guess it was like, it wasn't a straight shot. It was like a, it was like. I guess grazed. It grazed her and that's how her, her rib was able to maintain intact. Yep. It didn't take a full blow. Sid grows and grabs Mickey's gun just to make sure, you know. Yeah, he doesn't have just it. Just to make sure the good guys are in charge of all the fire. Gail asked for it and so they both have guns. They're looking at Mrs. Loomis thinking they, that she's going to come back they here. They say, I don't know. They always come back. At which point Mickey stand, stands up and the two of them just open fire and empty both fucking clips into him. Yeah, and he goes literally flying backwards. Flying backwards, wire work style. You want to be a farmer? Here's a few acres. <laughs> boom, 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 boom. <laughs> and Sid just at the last minute, you know, with one shot left, just decides, puts one a cap right in Mrs. Loomis's head. Just, just in says, case. It's one of the- and says, just in case. Like, so coldly, too. And even like Cotton and Gale are just like, look at her like, you fucking freak. Yeah, just like, that's really cold. It's fucked up. Yeah. I remember when I watched this by Great Anne for the first time, she looked at that and she's like, oh, that, why did they, they got to do that? <laughs> this is awful. And so, so finally, the following day, Chief is like, well, I guess my job's done. He is yep. just as useless as uh, Chief O'Hara in Batman 66 right here. Yep. Gale, the ambulance says he's got a couple of broken ribs, but Joel comes back. After all this is said, Joel finally shows up for the cleanup, all yeah. gung-ho to fucking do a reporting. He says, I think we could maybe could get a scoop in like the old days. Like, like what What old days? 48 yesterday? hours ago? Like fucking yesterday? Like your Gale Weathers at Windsor College. He has her a microphone if she, she just had her fucking ribs taped up and bandaged. And you think it's going to end like how Scream 1 where she's just going to do the report and that's it. But she's distracted because they're pulling out somebody. Say, hey, we got a live one here. It's Dewey. He survived. Now, and he's missing his shoe for some reason. I guess he got lost somehow in the scuffle, but do you think Dewey should have died? I don't know, because it's like we killed Randy, and we thought he was dead, and it is a way to raise the stakes. It, it is going against Especially, horror movie tropes where you know the survivors of these ordeals keep fucking living. It's the same core of fucking people. Right, and you think, like, it, like obviously, the second one of the chapter, you go by the Empire Strikes Back rule of it, that it's supposed to be the darkest one in the series. Yeah. And in many ways, it could have been if he killed them both, but we only got Randy, so I don't know. But the Sydney comes out; she's all bandaged. The press want to interview her. Joel even says, "Sydney, what's like to be? What's it like to be a hero?" So she looks over at Cotton and says, "He's the man you want to talk to. He's the real hero. He's the real hero." And he gets finally he gets what he wants of him being like the he gets the recognition, and yeah. he even looks at Sydney and like nods and like and, and he recognizes it and thanks her. Nods in a way of thanks, just saying it's like, "Yeah, thank you," you know. He get he she gets what he she wants and he gets what he wants right and there. And he even said, look, you know, as much as I want to tell you, there's a time and a place and a price for it. So he gives the card and he's gonna he's, <laughs> he's gonna make sure he gets his worth exactly for the right interview. There. Precisely. He says, I'll tell you one thing though, it'll make a hell of a movie. And that's the last line of the film. And we get a nice helicopter wide shot. Helicopter shot of Sydney just walking away from the college by herself. And it zooms out now apparently there was supposed to be a ghost face ghost face here in the tower watching her. Oh, yeah? That's how it was originally going to end. But they nixed that idea. But that's how they end the movie. That, like, the movie ends with, like, Sydney walking off by herself. Yep. 
A very important thing right here. And then the movie and, ends. And that really comes into play in Scream 3. Yeah, especially. Now, the one thing we were arguing about before, about like the na- the copycat naming of the victims and everything, I think you could have set something up. What I was trying to say before of Cece being by herself, like give the fucking roommate XX, because now that we know Mickey's the killer, Mickey knew these people. Yeah. Mickey would have access to them. And like how she upstaged him in the class, that's why yeah. he chose to kill her. It's just... It's not that I'm a. It's not that I'm against any of these kills. Yes, you need the two in the beginning to set everything up. I, I figured everybody yes, was at need, the sorority party. Yes, you need uh, to kill Cece to get the distraction to get to Sydney. It's just the simple fact that all these people coincidentally had the exact same fucking names. I I, I feel like that's one of the things that was like or had one name. It was like halfway through writing, Kim Williamson had the idea like, what if they all have the same names and then just threw it in there. It doesn't really play. It doesn't really come into effect there at the end. It's too convenient for me. I can I can see that, but the movie ends. So uh, yeah, you still say this is the your least favorite of the series, even despite the conversation we just had. Yeah, because I, I I feel like you're gonna have to be on the defensive of Scream Three. I hope you know that. Oh, I know that, and I have no problem being on the defensive. I'll be on the defensive right now. It's because even though I know that they're oh, the Scream franchise goes for the whole meta aspect of horror movies, where each each film represents something. The Lollipop Kids. Represent the Lollipop Guild. The Lollipop <laughs> Guild. And in the name of the Lollipop Guild, we wish for you to go fuck your mother. <laughs> oh, wow. That's harsh. But um, how each film represents sort of a different stage in like a, a film's progression. You have the original. You have the sequel. You have the trilogy. You have the remake. Mm-hmm. That's how the four ways go with Scream. Each of them brings that out into like into a very self-aware fourth wall breaking aspect. Mm. I feel that for this movie, that can be kind of problematic because in many ways, a sequel is just doing what the first one did again. Yeah. And look how many things happened again. You know, Sydney fucking hitting Gale in the fucking face, you know, you the boyfriend get... being a prime su- suspect, the bumbling Dewey trying to solve everything. I, I think it's, it makes sense why you feel like that because you, the things you've said, you are very appreciative of movies that take chances mm-hmm. rather than lather, rinse, repeat. Mm-hmm. Because of like what we said about like the Halloween movies, some of them are just kind of like, well, we had a we we said nice things about Halloween Five and, and Rob Halloween, Zombies Halloween Two, and yeah, even like even Halloween Six to some degree. Even like we had some nice things to say about that, not many, not many. But yeah, well, Halloween too. Like, yeah, as divisive as that movie is, like, we we appreciated that he took a chance with it. I appreciated that we weren't getting just the fuck. And, and now that like it's because as a kid, I never fucking what. What are you talking about? It's the same movie. What the fuck are you talking about? It's clearly different. Look, there's yeah. different people in there, but hitting location. the exact same story beats. Everything ends exactly the same as it started. You know, maybe things are somewhat different, but it's not different enough for your taste. It's not different enough where you feel like these characters have moved into a new place in their lives where everything has been changed by this. Mm-hmm. I mean, in some ways, yes. Like, look at the Halloween series. You where think it's superficially changed because they've just changed locations and they look a little different. In sequels, you could have that at times. Mm-hmm. You know, like, look at as much as I love Ghostbusters 2, look at that, you know. It ended practically the same way as it did the first one where the Ghostbusters saved the day. Yeah. And, you know. And, like, at the beginning, it's just the three of them and not Ernie Hudson helping about Well, Ernie Hudson's there helping at children's parties. <sighs> yeah. I but, like Ghostbusters 2. Oh, record. I love Ghostbusters 2. Yeah. But when it comes to Scream 2, I, I kind of felt that the sequel aspect, even though I understand what they were going for, I felt it. I, I didn't feel it hurt. I felt it held back. Okay. 
Like, it, 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 I feel like it held back a little bit. The the killers and their motives, I just wasn't digging as much as, you know, Scream 3. I love Scream 3 with the idea of that it's a trilogy, the final chapter of a trilogy, and that it all goes back to the past, and it really does. And I feel that there's this high degree of plausibility of the killer and his motives in that one, which we will get to next month. Yeah. That this was all because of him, and they play it. I feel felt that they executed it so well, and even the ending of Scream, the final shot of Scream 3, of Sydney's yes. door being, a little spoiler, of Sydney's door blowing wide open by the mm-hmm. wind, and she doesn't care. Yeah, she's, she's comfortable with it. Because she understands it's over. Now, do you think the story of this movie is hurt because of the rushed production? Um, If they had an extra year, if they did two years in between, and another dra- a few more drafts could be written, do you think it would, it would, the final product would be improved in your eyes? So I know it's a hypothetical question. That depends on what Kevin Williamson came up with in his original treatment during the writing of Scream 1. Because right. remember, the reason, one of the reasons why this came out and was as good as it was, was because it was mostly already written. Yeah. You know? He had the main plot line, he just had to fit, he just had to plug in. And he had it mostly written before the fucking movie was even greenlit. Yeah. You know? He was he was already on top of that shit right away. It wasn't like the movie got greenlit, and oh fuck, I only got three months to write this fucking thing. Mm-hmm. He had been writing it for over a year, technically. Right. So, I don't feel it did. I just kind of feel like, where do you go from there? You know, because mm-hmm. this we didn't have supernatural killers. We had real fucking killers. Mm-hmm. We had two people doing it, you know, to create the illusion of one big killer. Right. And Scream 1 was such a good self-contained story. It really was. You know, you didn't need a Scream 2, and that's what's hard about it. When you have a first one that's so well self-contained and you want to make it two, well, how do I make it two when everything was wrapped up so nicely before? Right. Where do I go from here? But it's like one of the things that, like, there's a screenwriting teacher by the name of John Truby, like, always prepare for your next story. Like, a story doesn't really end. Like, like it's Hollywood. you got to be ready for a sequel and everything. So, like, be prepared for that. And it's obviously a rule that kind of – because I think it's, like, reported, like, at least on John Truby's site, that Kevin Williamson was a student of John Truby at one point. Um, I don't know if it's just like one of those things like, hey, these are famous people that took my class. Take mine so you can be a good writer as them, et cetera, et cetera. But me personally, on certain days, I prefer Scream 2 to Scream 1 because it ups the stakes. But it's also the fact that like I love the opening, that how it satirizes horror movie fans and just satisfies oh, movie yeah. fans. I'm not saying it's a bad movie at all. No, it's no, just, no, no. I'm saying it's Within the confines my, in this franchise. I'm saying it's my least favorite of this franchise. Mm-hmm. But also, I, I love the scene with David Warner and I love the play and like how it's so reflective. It's very on the nose, but so reflective of how Sydney's journey is going to be throughout these three movies. That like how that this is going to be almost like inevitable and she has to make a stand and, and change everything that unless she makes a stand, this is going to keep repeating itself. And she finally does eventually by, and she does in this. And then uh, she finally puts the nail in the coffin in scream three on, um, but that there's going to be a remake coming in scream four. Mm-hmm. Um, or oh, the remake idea, uh, remake the idea. Meta, meta remake idea. Yes. And so, I really enjoy this movie. I mean, like, if if I have time, like, I usually throw, like, if I'm watching Scream 1, I'll usually throw on Scream 2 right on afterwards. Like, how you do with, like, your Halloween yeah. marathon, I do the very same thing with Scream 2. Like I said, I don't think it's a bad movie. I don't dislike it. It's just not my favorite out of the four. I will still, I still definitely give it a recommendation. I still definitely think people should watch it. Uh, but I don't think it's better than the original. Mm-hmm. I think it's a decent successor. But the simple fact that so much of it was practic- 
practically ignored, mm-hmm. kind of in a Rocky Five into Rocky Balboa kind of way in Scream Three. Mm-hmm. I'd say see it. Yeah. If you if you want to watch the whole Scream series, you know you're not you're not you're not doing yourself a disservice by not seeing it. I know we didn't talk about it that much, but I think this is some West Graham firing on all cylinders right here when it comes to his direction, how he's able to build suspense and build sequences. And I mean, especially in the Randy kill scene, because you think, like, there's no way he's going to get him, and Ghostface does. And then we lead it into the, the sound booth scene as well in the car chase. I mean, like, it's just really awesome to see him be able to do really good stuff. Just make sure you have plenty of Visine drops on on uh, on hand for all the eye-rolling you're going to do during some of the dialogue and acting scenes. That's fair. But any other thoughts? Uh, no. They scream too. And, you know, the way you should see it, I, I still... My recommendations for how to watch it nowadays, you know, obviously you get the Hulu and everything. It's pretty much going to be for all these movies with the exception of Scream 4, go to the five-film Blu-ray set. Yes. Or get one of the later released DVDs that's corrected for anamorphic widescreen. Right. And it's so funny. Um, it's funny that you watched this originally on Stars, you said. When you have to watch it on Hulu, you need like a star subscription to watch on Hulu. Is that what, what yeah, the deal was? Yeah, fucking Stars package. That's freaking ridiculous. Another um, seven bucks. Jesus Christ. That's the thing. That's what all these fucking streaming things are going to be. It's like, my cable bill is too expensive, but all these streaming things are so cheap. Okay, well, I'll add this package. I'll add this package. I'll add this. Oh, cool. Now my, for all my streaming it's packages, just, it's now equates to what my cable bill used to be. A bundling, it's going to literally become cable for the internet. Like, that's what's going to, the streaming services are going to end up being bundled together for that. That's why it's, I think it's like, on the bright side. Everything's on demand. Yeah. You can watch what you want when you want. Um, that's what, like, I had this idea, like, like, okay, now that Disney owns 20th Century Fox, is Disney going to put back the Michael Jackson episode when, because the, all Simpsons is going to Disney Plus now. Oh, God. Yeah. Anyway. That's, that's something, that merger fucking scares the shit out of me. Yep. Me too. And I highly recommend it. Like I said, I, on certain days, I prefer it more than one, but I, that, that's, like, I might be roasting glasses with that, and I'm not sure. I don't think I'd ever prefer this over one. That's I fair. I still think Scream 1 is the best mm-hmm. okay and so i know you don't have any social media plugs nope. so uh, leave me the fuck alone yeah if you want to find me you can find me here remember send all hate mail to tim yeah and you can send that hate mail to timothy Rooney too on twitter if you want to talk to me there and uh if, if you also listen to my other podcast please rewind the rf forum retro show where we do a very similar thing like this where we talk about movies but it comes to their anniversaries you can find all the episodes for that show and all the other shows in that network at RF4, as in the number four, rm.com, where that's where you see, like, Holy Batcast, Real Fans for Real Movies, Grim Grinning Host, etc., etc. And, <clears throat> excuse me, my voice kind of go there, there at the very end. If you want to help support the show, leave us a five-star and written review on iTunes. It really helps get the word out. And subscribe so you never miss an episode. I know the episodes have been kind of uh, sparse in between. Like, like last episode on the show was Scream 1. And so it's been it's been a minute to a new episode, but I assure you more and new episodes are coming, especially interviews with filmmakers. I'm in the works of getting in, in order, so we look forward to that. So, Mike, thank you for taking time right now to talk about Scream 2 with me. Thanks for having me, buddy. All right. Come back next time as we continue to talk about geek and pop culture, and we'll speak to you soon.